0: What's up, everybody? Welcome back to I Came Fire Podcast. Tonight, we are here with Seno Talk. Seno uh, Talk is a China-focused independent analyst, but I'm going to let him tell you guys a little bit about himself, uh, his background, how he got started, um, independent journalism, all that. So, Seno, thank you for coming on with us tonight. Um, as you guys can see, Seno... Um, uh, would appreciate not being shown. So we're going to respect that and keep his screen blank. Uh, But for all intents and purposes, this will remain a video episode. So, but Sino, yeah, go ahead and introduce yourself, man.
1: Hey, everyone. My name is Sino Talk. As Brandon said, I'm a China-focused independent analyst, but I also can touch upon various other aspects and topics of the East Asia uh, regions such as India, North Korea, the Pacific Islands, etc. A little bit about myself, well, I guess it's where I began, uh, where my interests actually budded or fruited. Um, I was in the Marine Corps for five years as an inter-analyst, and the first two years I was actually stationed on Okinawa, where I actually got to see and notice the importance of... China and not only then, but also now in the future. And so that would kind of led me to focus a lot of my uh, research and analysis on China, but other uh, East Asia topics.
0: That's awesome. Um, so your experience and essentially in the Marine Corps as an intel analyst, what would you say um, it was with your leadership as far as uh, discussing China and them being an upcoming threat? I think it would be a mixed bag of one. Some
1: understood while others didn't see it. Mm-hmm. They thought that, you know, the low intensity conflicts in the Middle East and Afghanistan would be the bread and butter and brain cords of China because they didn't see the threat. They didn't really see mm-hmm. like the reason why we should focus on China. Yeah. And yeah. So it was kind of weird because, you know, even whenever I tried to explain to them, it's this is it's a threat they they said this like even in like uh even in like their state exactly even in their state media they they said like yeah we we want to uh 2049 plan exactly and so and even then like they said oh go that's just propaganda you can't really just believe it i'm like there's a there's a fine line between propaganda and like what they believe Mm -hmm. i mean like Like, if we're going to use the same terminology or the same uh, uh, analogy, you know, the Nazis said, oh, well, we want to kill, we want to, you know, annihilate all the Jews. And at the time, people thought it was propaganda until, you know, we seen the camps. Right. That's a good, good analogy. Yeah. So it was very interesting. And even then, like, it was very interesting as I sat down and thought about exactly the demographics of who said this, mm-hmm. it was always like two major groups. It was one in the officer corps it was like the majors of captains, like half and half where they said that, Hey, Afghanistan is always going to be, or places like Afghanistan will always be the burning course focus. China's not so much, even mm-hmm. then we could still win if we wanted to, we'll beat them. We'll beat them easily. And, you know, as I explained to him, you know, it's, it's not really the case. They're becoming a better force. They're actually training. They actually are taking. actually learning from, right, and analyzing, you know, past wars. And then not only that, but um, you know, understanding the United States and the West and Western military's faults and try to build upon those. Mm-hmm. And then the other demographic within the enlisted side was the staff and CO corps and. You know this e sixes staff sergeants and above where right. they said they don't really see the point um China's not a threat they you know whenever we would debate about this, they would ultimately use their rank and say like I'm a staff sergeant, mm-hmm. you're a corporal or a lance corporal, I know better. right and right. I, was like, I staff sergeant,
0: yeah. <laughs> i've definitely been there before i've been told just essentially by you know authority of rank that i'm right you're wrong you know despite the facts and uh it's interesting you say that because i've had similar conversations even recently with uh leaders in my unit and other units about the upcoming threat uh with china and just some of the things that have been said to me you know that this will never be uh, a hot war or this will never be a boots on the ground war or whatever um you know, you can think that all you want. Um, if it never happens, then good, right. As long as America, uh, writes its ship. Um, but you know, to, to think that this would be an all online war, a cyber war, essentially all the way through to me is a pretty crazy thought. because, um, you know, it, it says to me that this person doesn't understand the way the internet works, Uh, Because all this stuff needs to be able to connect to something, data links, all this stuff. And once that goes away, it's just, you know, you and me, and that's it, you know, boots on the ground. And uh, look at, look at what happened in the Ukraine with Russia. They went right back to trench warfare, you know, despite all the the technology we have available, this supposed Russian hypersonic missile, the Kinzel, you know, all this stuff that uh, they, they have this more technologically advanced than we were in World War One, and here we are back in their in trench warfare. So um, it's, it somehow, it just seems to go right back to mud, blood, and grinding it out. You know, so um, but it, that is it is pretty wild. I'd say you know, and I was I'm not in the Marine Corps I'm in the Air Force, and uh, we we definitely have spent a lot more time focusing on China now in um, a lot of different ways. So that's good. It's nice to see, although uh sometimes it feels a a little too late. Um, but we'll see. You know, the United States is a pretty resilient country. Um, but honestly, that's one of the biggest reasons why I wanted to have you on here. You know, checking out your Substack, um, the your the Instagram page you run and some of the guys that you the crowd that you run in. You guys have a lot of really great things to say, and a lot of people need to hear what you guys talk about and understand the dynamic. And it's funny too, because yesterday Zach and I were on the phone, and he he had a map up, and he was like looking at all this stuff, like how close like Okinawa is to Taiwan, to Taiwan, you know, to mainland China and Guam, and all this. And he was like, "Holy shit!" You know, we were talking about um, different weapon systems, you know, the DF twenty one, DF seventeen, and Uh, aircraft carriers. And I think for the first time, Zach even had himself a little bit of a coming to Jesus moment about Mm -hmm. how how serious it is and how close everything is in that area, you know?
1: Yeah, so a lot of people don't really understand that is the fact that Okinawa is probably around 200 or so miles away or nautical miles away from um, uh, Taiwan. Not only that, but I mean, if you're going to really talk, focus upon the Ryukyu Islands, Yuguni Island is only, it's less than like a hundred mm. or so kilometers away. I mean, you could see right. Taiwan, the Western shores of Taiwan and the mountain ranges on a, a yeah. clear day. And so That's to nuts. say that, yeah. I mean, to say that they don't really see, to say that geography doesn't matter in the Pacific because it's a, it's an ocean and it's, there's islands. Yeah. We can we can island hop. That screams in the face of past experiences of the US military, especially during War Two.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: In fact, because, you know, island hopping campaign demanded them understanding geography, understanding the islands, which islands is more are more important, which ones get just literally lither on the line, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so that's the reason why. Geography geographies play such an important role, even if it is water <laughs> <an> ocean,
0: <laughs> yeah, no doubt, and we looked up some of the ranges on like these missiles that we were talking about, you know the d f twenty one is an anti aircraft carrier ballistic missile literally designed to take out United States aircraft carriers, and the range on it means that you know it can hit from pretty far out now, I know we're going to have a conversation about like likelihood of hitting moving targets, carrier strike groups and defense and stuff like that but on paper just on the surface like understanding the arena for combat potentially is extremely important and um being able to pick your battlefield so to speak and demand the terms of which you're going to meet your enemy on the field all of that like you said geography has to be taken into account positioning what is more advantageous strategically all of that stuff um which again like i said i'm really really glad that you're on here to talk to us about. So. I appreciate it, man.
1: No, you're welcome. Dan. I, yeah. I mean, I really do really appreciate you and you and Zach reaching out to me. So we can actually discuss this because it seems like a lot of the topics we're going to be talking about are very important, but not many people are talking about them.
3: get mm-hmm. glossed over. Yeah. So when you were in the Marine Corps, you don't have to tell us the exact time frame, unless you don't, unless you want to, um, I'm assuming you're you're older. Um so your five years, was that like the early two thousands, late two thousands? When was that? Like who was George Bush president? Was Obama president? Like who was what time frame were we talking about?
1: I would say I served majority in the Obama era, in which okay. um I don't know how political we can get into this podcast, but as political as you want. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um his administration kind of dropped the ball regarding China. And I, I'm, I'm saying this as a, as apolitical as possible because, you know, most people will say, oh, because, you know, he's a Democrat. And you know, other people are like, oh, well, he's, you know, not a Republican. He, he's, you know, liberal, progressive. Like, sure. No, he just dropped the ball. Just like right. George W. Bush did. And the reason why he dropped the ball, and I will give this credit to Obama for realizing that, this is the mm-hmm. fact that or realizing the error of this is a fact that we thought for the longest time that China, we could make China change we can guide, we can guide its rise to power, if you will, as a, as a power and do, you know, economics, you know, mm-hmm. if we give them economic capitalism, they'll eventually get democracy. But as Simmons, as Cinnamon Square shown, not so much. Yeah. And, but that not only, they not only decrease, um, they not only um, glossed over, but it took them another 10 or uh, 20 or so years before they realized that China is really not our friend. (laughs) It's something else.
3: Yeah. The main reason why I brought it up is because Obama is coined for starting like the Asia pivot where like during the Obama administration his his later years not early on so like his second term exactly he started his like hey we should the war in Afghanistan's ending the war in Iraq is like ending the war on terror is ending and he was starting his like Asia pivot like we need to start worrying about China all type of stuff so I was curious if maybe cuz at least in the Air Force today uh we usually don't learn about China being a threat or anything until N- until NCOA so you are a, like a tech sergeant uh, or just recently put on tech sergeant, which is E6. And you have a whole course about it. They make you write papers about it, study about it, learn about it. Most of the people in my class didn't even know about the, the Belt Road Initiative. Um, they didn't know that China's like building islands in the Pacific. They didn't know about the Nine Dash line. And to me, I was like, what? Like you are NCOs in the Air Force. You don't know about this. And I, I do praise the Air Force for trying to teach them, like forcing it upon them, I guess. So they know when they become leaders. But I was just curious if maybe the the leaders you were talking about, so like the captains and majors, they probably weren't too far into the, I guess, the overall scope. Probably more like colonels and generals who probably knew most about China being a threat and it just didn't get filtered down because it wasn't needed. But for your like upper echelon of enlisted, like your senior NCOs, do you think they were maybe a year like a Lance Corporal or Corporal or private First Class, whatever, talking to them saying, hey, this is important. Do you think maybe they were... Lowering you down so you didn't worry about it while they were actually worrying about it. Does that make sense? Like they were because they knew about it, but they were like, "Hey, like stay in your lane, don't worry about it." Yeah, until you get to like sergeant, staff sergeant. Does that make sense? Yeah. No i I do agree to that in some
1: in some aspects, but then also there's because they they had that you know I've noticed in other units not so much as mine that they were still piped information or keep it away from, keep it to themselves or certain groups of individuals. But Mm. I lucked out being amongst, you know, captains and majors who also saw that and staff sergeant and gunnies and, you know, and sergeants who saw the threat that China posed, not only militarily, but economically, diplomatically, things as that. And so that's why I consider myself lucky being able to be with them who and be under their tutelage we will or mentorship to, so they can blossom me or you know school mm-hmm. me mm-hmm. and one of the bigger things about it is i think it's just because we were in afghanistan since 2001 iraq in 2003 and various other places in the north uh, in the shahil north africa and middle east of africa and we've been there for so long that mm-hmm. there may have been some bias and the fact that th- these are always going to be our wars. No one's going to get into a conventional fight anymore. Mm-hmm. So I kind of, I kind of view it as like Francis Fukumaya's um um, the end of history, mm-hmm. which I, I don't believe in what he, the majority of the book. And the fact that he said like, the United States is a unipolar power. And, right. you know, within, in, that's like the only time in history that that ever happened, which you know that's wrong. Even in you know during uh, Great Britain, the Pax Britannica, you had mm-hmm. these other powers in which uh, try to change the balance of power to definitely make uh, exactly to make uh, to less to make uh, Britain less powerful, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So it's one of those things in which I kind of see it both ways. And the fact that, you know, stay in your lane, but then also the bias. And the fact that we're always going to be fighting this war because we will, because we have always have.
0: I think the other thing, too, is the, the military in general is so slow to pivot to something else than what they're focusing on and have been focusing on. That having conversations about other areas is detracting in their mind from training for, you know, modern uh, operations, military operations in urban terrain or whatever, you know, like, oh, we're focused on the Middle East or Southwest Asia or whatever. So let's not talk about this right now, because it seems to be the military is very focused on one thing and one thing only. So that like unilateral thinking, um, talking about that, kind of jumps into, you know, where I really like to start this thread is how the U.S. got here you know, everybody understands that the United States has been at war and has, you know, for, for 20 plus years, the longest war in U.S. history. Uh, there's lots to be said about it in a lot of different ways, um, a lot of different thoughts and opinions that people have. But other than uh, the, the very obvious 20 plus years of war, where did the world's largest military industrial complex drop the ball?
1: I think it's the UA- the United States losing its ability to do long-term or future analysis. Because as Mm -hmm. Peter Zahan actually pointed out in the Joe Rogan podcast, that the United States lost a lot of that forward thinking in the years immediately after 9-11 because we were so focused, as you said, Brandon, we were so focused Mm -hmm. upon the threat of Islamic terrorism, Al-Qaeda, Islamic State, that we didn't really see the point of having or needing that Future analysis to where, hey, you know, we see China as a threat in 2045, so we just need to start planning on producing X number of destroyers. Maybe we need a mm-hmm. new defense system, uh, uh, anti-ballistic uh, air mi- uh, ballistic missile system. We need to redo the entire doctrine of the Marine Corps so they can fit into this, etc. Right. And while I do agree with Zahan that you know the United States is getting that capability back from my perspective it's at least eight years too late i agree maybe even that. 10 maybe even 10 right because definitely yeah because we can't just build that um, build that um we can't build it back up overnight like a lot of people mm-hmm. think oh what's this future analysis like looking at a crystal ball like not really like when you're trying to do future analysis, you have to take in the account of a lot of stuff like economics, uh, military, domestic political situation and project all those out
2: Mm -hmm. to
1: see what will, uh, what could happen or will happen. And it takes a really good ounce to do that.
0: Yeah, for sure. Uh, It's interesting. You bring that up about um, losing focus because there's another book, I don't know, you may have read it so no, um, it's called Ghost Wars by a guy named Steve Cole. Um, in it he discusses that when obviously the United States ran a lot of interference against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan for a long time. Um, and were giving out weapons and you know, uh those anti-aircraft missiles that they they were giving out the name, the type of them uh escapes my mind right now. But after that was over and the Soviet Union left Afghanistan, the United States said, OK, cool, deuces, we're out of here. All these warlords, you know, we don't need you anymore. All this stuff that you know we promised you guys um, about helping you rebuild, we're really not going to focus on. And they lost all these people that spoke the dialects of the region. They lost all these people that had um, the intel and understood the traditions and customs of the region and when they needed it and they needed it immediately they only had two people that spoke i want to say pashto and the maps that they had of afghanistan sitting in like the foreign field office uh were from like 1970s and uh you know and it's so it just goes to show you it seems to be a thing where you know we say okay this is done we don't need to focus or have anything, you know, nobody keeping up, even in the background. And, um, but this time it seems it's it's really bitten us in the ass because we are playing catch up in a lot of different ways. And it does seem like, you know, the Chinese have outpaced, well, they definitely have outpaced us in a lot of different ways, but almost seemingly um, to the point where we cannot catch up unless something happens to them and they stop. So. No, I, I
1: agree with that. And it's the fact that, I think it's a combination of us not really caring, but then also with the fact that you have to understand um, throughout the years at the State Department, there's been purges of China experts. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. The most significant was the McCarthy era, where he pretty much right. did a fantastic job.
2: If you're
1: looking at it from the Chinese viewpoint of destroying any any people who've been to China are obviously a red communist, mm-hmm. they don't need to be here. Let's kick them out. And right you know, that led to a lot, to a massive brain drain within China or within the State Department, but not only the State Department, but also the Defense Department as well. Uh And you kind of see that again, in a way, whenever Henry Kitchener wanted to negotiate with China, he literally sidestepped all the budding, uh, the new generation of China, watchers, and China Islands within the State Department. He said, I don't Mm -hmm. need y'all. I understand this country and look at, look at what we've got back. Look how we look at where that got us in terms of mm-hmm. not only with China, but then also with Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Um, um, especially the verbiage surrounding like the three communiques, the Shanghai communique thinks this is that because um, I don't know if you really read the news or, or read the news whenever, whenever Blinken was in China the last time. Mm-hmm. Uh, There's a reason why he highlighted those, uh, those communiques. Matter of fact, when everyone, every State Department administration highlights that, is because the Chinese focus so much on those communiques and things such as that. So, hey, you agree to this, like you, you can't go back on your word. It's I know it's like, it's like a catch twenty two because China, you know, essentially takes. any agreements that they find relevant to them or advantageous to them as a of law and totally disregarding others that do not like it.
0: Mm-hmm. Can you expand on what those communiques actually are for people who are listening who may not know?
1: Yeah, so the communiques... So the three communiques are a series of speeches or statements made by both the Chinese and the United States um, right before... A little bit after the United States or China opened up to the United States or the United States established relations, mm-hmm. and in it, they said that China essentially the bread and butter of these communications is that Taiwan. There is only one China, and it's between Taiwan and United, and and Taiwan. It's only and it's between Taiwan and China to decide what that looks like. So. They kind con- so in a weird way, Kissinger sidestepped the issue while saying that, "Hey, we we understand there's one China, but and we're not going to get involved, or at least overtly, mm-hmm. and because that's a domestic issue, that's an internal issue between not only you, China, but also Taiwan. Which, right. at my viewpoint, he got it right in the fact that he did recognize that it was a domestic issue." But then also the he got it wrong because of the fact that he didn't really, he also recognized that it's a domestic issue or in the fact that that kind of gives China more lead way in the, uh, to say, but out of our business.
0: Mm-hmm. Please. I think I just want to say real quick too, that I've had, I've heard from a lot of people when we talk about this, um, they don't understand why there's a rift between China and Taiwan, um, they don't understand that during the, the communist revolution, basically the losing side went to Taiwan um, and established a, a different nation, so to speak. Um, is there anything about that that uh, you know, maybe I just gave a very uh, top down overview of it, but that I didn't say out loud generally that um, other people should know? Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of people should know is that the reason
1: why Taiwan or the KMT actually fled to Taiwan is because they lost. Mm-hmm. They essentially lost the civil war in nineteen ninety nine. Like they've ended or they completely uh, uh, fled the evacuated the, the mainland. I want to say a month or so after they after Mao declared the PRC as mm-hmm. a country, and so. Well, yes, there was a there was that remnant of the nationalist government within Taiwan that says you know that may, pretty much ruled as an independent entity, uh, de facto a de facto mm-hmm. independent entity. It kind of evolved, or the rift kind of evolved over the years between you know Taiwan and China
2: mm-hmm.
1: because of how, because of the pathways they took. You have to understand the Taiwanese or the KMT was based upon a Leninist Marxist system. Mm -hmm. So in a weird way, they were communist. (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm.
1: A lot of people don't realize this. Right. Yeah. Even to this day, if you were to go on the the ministry of defense website, you can still see a section that says political warfare Mm -hmm. department. And so it's one of those things in which. Interesting. Yeah. They they try to say that they're not, they try to hide that. But in the same time, it's like the evidence is right there. Mm Mm-hmm. And not only that, but the pathway divulged in the eighties whenever Chen guy six a son or grandson i say mm-hmm. actually moved towards in the, democracy, adding democracy or moving towards democracy mm-hmm. because before that Taiwan and China was essentially the same uh autocratic government ruled by one person who who held the majority of power. But then in the 80s, kind of seen that change in Taiwan, where, you know, we said, we need to democratize, we're opening, you know, we're beginning to open up our economy. And so that's where you've seen this road to democracy leading up to the first election in Taiwan in Mm -hmm. the mid 90s. And then conversely with that, you have... CCP dominated Chinese Communist Party dominated China. Where not so much they've maintained that one party rule will aid the Chinese people will show will, will make them prosperous. The mm-hmm. revolution will make you prop, prosperous, as Mao would say. in um, that failed during the Maoist era. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Mao killed at least eighty million. That's wild. between yeah between like nineteen forty nine to until he died in nineteen seventy six I believe
2: mm-hmm.
1: he was responsible for that many for millions of deaths because of his outrageous policies and not only that but the Cultural Revolution and mm-hmm. him calling everyone that he can Borgias in and right. State. So and then not only that but you seen China beginning to bring in, a, you know, become a capitalist economy, and then you seen them, like, okay, we can we can allow some democracy in, you know, we we can let you vote at the village level, see if that works out, but ultimately mm-hmm. the power will be with us because we can't let you Chinese, you know, rule yourselves because you know it, it will go crazy. Look at the Warlord era. Look at the past era where yeah. you know, chaos reigned. Right, and so that's kind of leads me to another point to where the rift lies in the fact that that whole um, argument on the C- that the CCP has Taiwan kind of nullifies it because mm-hmm. Taiwan is a demo- is a functioning democracy. It yes, the elections can get out of hand, but I encourage you, or I encourage you to look at any other elections within the Asia-Pacific region and compared to two. They're pretty much right. the same in terms of, uh, yeah, exactly, uh, in terms of um, volume and just intensity. Mm-hmm. And so you see this driving democracy that flies in the face of Taiwan, or it flies in the face of China. And not only that, but just the fact that it kind of a nationalist aspect of it, because they mm-hmm. want, they feel as if By reacquiring Taiwan or reunifying, quote unquote, Taiwan, which a fun fact, Taiwan was really never unified with China, Mm -hmm. but reunification is a thing that they like to say or the CCP likes to say because it fits their narrative, it fits their propaganda. Mm -hmm. But they've kind of viewed it as like writing the final writing of the historical wrong of the. Mm hundred years of humiliation in which mm-hmm. taiwan uh, was taken by the japanese in 1895.
0: Mm-hmm. So. so that you did a really good out you really good job outlining a lot of the history that goes into this because i think a lot of people seem to just think that the tension with china and everything that china has been aiming to do uh, is only coming from a place that's maybe a couple decades old since america lost focus. Um, you know, you, you're talking about um, earlier like the Qing Dynasty, Shanghai um uh, the 100 years of um, uh, embarrassment or whatever it's um, called, 100 years of shame. And uh, this has some serious roots. The so Chinese see themselves as the oldest cult- culture on Earth and that they are the center of the Earth and that all of this that goes on on the Earth is eventually going to be China again. As China sees it, and so this isn't just um, a new political aim that maybe Xi Jinping or his you know the the former chairman, the last couple chairmen have decided is going to happen. This is something that is is of historical significance. They're changing their political landscape, changing the landscape on um, you know the the things that people are allowed to read and the history that they learn. Uh, You know, I I was going to ask you when you brought up Mao. I wonder how many Chinese citizens actually know about Mao and how many people died during the cultural revolution, because I feel like the number is probably pretty low. You'd be surprised actually.
1: Um, really?
0: Yeah. Um, a lot
1: of people know a lot of people died, but at the same time, mm-hmm. they know not to talk about it, obviously, mm-hmm. um, for, uh, for fear of being imprisoned or being told, right. not, don't say that. Um, losing their accounts or losing their social media accounts. Right. Um it's interesting because you kind of see it you kind of if you break it up by demographic, you kind of see it's a, it's an increase. So mm-hmm. maybe around 45 maybe the elderly, they would they know how many people died, but they also won't talk about it because one they still have the love of communism, love of maoism like the like the love of that lost mm-hmm. age, even though it brought so much harm and despair to them. Mm-hmm. They still liked it because, you know, Mao gave us our respect back or, you know, our freedom, if you will, back. Sure. And then next to that is the, you know, Tenement Square uh, uh, Tenement Square generation, in which people, you know, they've opened, they had this opening up, people understood that maybe the Maoist era wasn't the best era we had. Mm-hmm and they kind of opened the door and like understanding Mao did these horrible things. And that's the reason why Deng Xiaoping said that, you know, while, uh, during one of the party Congress, Mao did some good stuff, but, and, but he also did some horrible stuff as well. He wasn't mm-hmm. always right. And so, so they understood, but then now that you have, but then it goes down to like the, maybe the thirties the twenties, um, my age, where they were able to go to college in the United States or in other Western countries, they were able to go and visit um, Taiwan. They were able to go visit um, and stay the, and stay and uh, and have a you know, have a semester in California or Texas or, or whatever have you,
4: mm-hmm.
1: and they finally understood that we did some horrible stuff <laughs> mouth is some horrible stuff because they, they, they researched this right. and you kind of see that you kind of see that whenever, especially whenever I was, I would talk to these, talk to some of the students
2: hmm.
1: and I would, I would ask them, Hey, I mean, I would get their trust. Of course. Like I would, I wouldn't like point blank ask them, uh, especially if they're like around other Chinese people, because sure. um, surveillance is intense. You, well, are not defensive it's just a mere fact that it's the, the whole notion that chinese communist party and their operatives are on you know, is on mm. us campus campuses or college campuses mm-hmm. is mm. right on the bat It's right on the bat and you kind Scary. of yeah it, it is it's it's one of those it's a very interesting aspect that's not really many people still talking about even though they kind of hinted at it in 2000 18 or 19 Mm
4: -hmm.
1: especially here in Texas but yeah so they would they wouldn't be defensive they would just say oh well I I don't want to talk about that if they're in front of if they're around Chinese people but if you get them alone and if they trust you enough not to like talk to anyone else or anyone anything anything else or anyone else like that Mm -hmm. in that matter at least repeat what he said then they'll be open about it like yeah I, I looked on a VPN Use a VPN yeah. to find like information about Mao, and I didn't know about this. I, you right. know, I knew, or well, I knew like Mao did some horrible things, but I didn't know he caused a Great Leap Forward famine. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't know like I didn't know all these things. In which you see that, in which you see that, and and they're being frank about it, and it kind of oh, eye opening because you think that oh, well, they believe propaganda. You know mm-hmm. they were bombarded with propaganda, but here's the thing with propaganda: if you're always bombarded with it, right, you just you, you're just going to ignore it. Exactly, you're just going to ignore it or just uh, like read it, it. Comes
2: like to the oh, background. Okay.
0: Exactly. I, I remember seeing a like a study they did on billboards on U.S. highways. It takes like eight passes, I think, before the billboard becomes part of the background where your brain doesn't actually pick it up anymore. So you you know, you'll see oh, casino, 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 and eventually you won't even notice that it's there until it changes. Um so it's and it's funny too, you say that that propaganda eventually becomes the background um in the United States even now in some of the way our MSM operates is the propaganda and the misinformation is all over the place and it's become so commonplace that we almost don't even react to it anymore because we just expect it.
3: Well, it even happens with our, like, big disaster-type pieces, too. Like, whenever True. there's, like, an active shooter... Like, I, I remember, right. like, 10, 15 years right. ago, an active shooter happened. Everyone's like, oh, my God. And it's, like, news forever. Oh, and now my. it's, like, just a sentence on, like, a quick thing because you're just yep. expecting there to be active shooters. You're like, oh, yeah, whatever. It's a normal thing. It just happens here. Yeah,
1: Yeah. no, I, no, I agree with that. It's one of those things in which the Chinese are expecting it. You do see some you do see some reaction to certain topics such as, you know, if it's involved nationalism with Taiwan mm-hmm. or, or at least sort um, aspects of Taiwan, mm-hmm. but other than that, it's just fades into the background.
2: Definitely.
3: So, so before we get kind of too into too far into like how China could maybe conduct this war or what it would look like going to war with China um, or having a conflict with them, I kind of want to just start out with a with a pretty broad question. Um, does anyone care about Taiwan? Like realistically, does anyone care? And why why would the U.S. get so involved in this if it's just a small island in the middle Good of the question. Pacific? Like what's what's the U.S.'s end game, or why should they care? Why should the U.S. people care? And why is it such a pivotal point in potential human history? I think
1: more people should care than what they do right now. At least pay more actual substantive service than the lip service that they do, mm-hmm. because for economic, diplomatic, uh, military things, as is that. And you know i I would po- I would pose to these to those same people who like don't really see the importance of Taiwan. Okay, do you want to pay three to four times? the cost of everyday products They yeah. include, I'm, I'm not even talking about like, you know, cell phones or, you know, uh, other electronics in general. I'm talking mm-hmm. about in general. I like
2: Car I'm talking about
1: Exactly. Because that will happen if Taiwan, if China would invade, mm-hmm. because it will cause the economy to crash so badly that, that, we may have to focus upon fixing our economy before even trying to intervene in China, uh mm-hmm. in Taiwan. Not only that but just economically and we kind of are getting away from this is that we have so much depo- we're overly dependent upon China. Mm-hmm. We're getting away from it but we still are dependent upon them in certain areas. So right. any so any conflict would uh, would meh uh, would disrupt those supply chains that still exist?
3: Yeah, but what I was so with the supply chain issues, right? So obviously, if a comic broke out, it's going to be like a whole bunch of like ramifications felt throughout the economy and consumers and all type of stuff. But with like the Vietnam War, the American public wasn't behind it, so it eventually fizzled out. Even though like the U.S. was winning, it fizzled out and ended because the American public wasn't behind it. And I, I, I guess if If China can in a way explain or prove or show to, I guess, enough Americans, like citizens, that, hey, if you just give us Taiwan and don't, don't support your government in trying to stop us or whatever, then we'll keep prices low. And I I guess is the American people like, are they ready to potentially give up their current Kush lifestyle for the people of Taiwan? Or for even the cause to stop China, or are we potentially so enveloped in our current lifestyles that we'll turn the other way because it's not on our doorstep? And I still get my iPhone. I still get my whatever. You know. You know. You know what I mean here.
1: Yeah. No, you actually make a good point, and it kind of leads me to my other uh, other point: is the fact that you know. The United States, any conflict within the United States or between the United States and China, I should say, would involve first strikes against American forces. Mm -hmm. So what that would mean, would we see strikes against, uh, would we see strikes against American bases in Okinawa and mainland Japan? Of course.
2: It brings Japan Japan in. Exactly. (laughs)
1: Exactly. It brings Japan in. Yeah. But not only that, but just strikes against Guam, and then now uh, China is indicating that Thai, uh, Australia will be hit. So you have this, so you have this snowballing effect in which, if you strike one of us, you're going to be fighting more than the United States. But then also with the fact that you have to look at poor horror, uh, the political environment after uh, before that before the attack, mm-hmm. a lot of people didn't really see the point of us getting involved in either theater even though China, even though japan imperial japan was doing a lot of this stuff
2: mm-hmm. yes
1: we did do some economic embargoes things like that that crippled the economy like what's going on now
2: mm-hmm.
1: but the main difference was the main difference was japan was desperate de- uh, was desperate enough to strike Pearl Harbor so they can set the conditions for a uh battle mm-hmm. which was midway which they for defeated,
3: yeah, but that was also a time and so, where, like, the U.S. government could, in a way, control the narrative of news, right? I feel like in, very. in they could kind of convince the American public that what we're doing is still good and that we're, we're we're moving forward. I'm not saying that like the war wouldn't happen outright or that it wouldn't begin, but like, I, I guess my overall question, Sino, so is what's the buy-in? to convince the American public to be supportive of stopping China for, for like today and for like the next 15, 20, 30 years.
1: Does that? Yeah, no, no, it it does. And I think the buy-in again, going back to economic as well, but then also a lot of people don't understand is Taiwan is a democracy like us. Mm -hmm. Taiwan is a democracy like, uh, like Australia, Japan, things like that. so, if we were to fail to go out to defend them, then not only our allies within the region would say, like, why do we have a, a alliance with you if you're not going to help us? But then also in Europe as well, but then also South America.
2: Mm-hmm. So
1: you will see this fracturing of you will see this continued fracturing of, of, of these regions to multipolar domains if you will so in south america or latin america it could probably between it could probably be between mexico and brazil and africa it could be south africa dominated at least some areas then you have some others that may be uh, dominated by egypt potentially maybe nigeria if they ever get their uh, domestic house in order Mm -hmm. And in Europe, it would be a mix of either EU or Eastern Europe. Mm
2: -hmm. Because
1: Eastern Europe would go their own way, if that was the case. Mm -hmm. And the Middle East would be potentially Saudi Arabia and Israel and Iran, a matchup between them three countries. And also Turkey. But specifically going back, the buy-in would be... You know, the American people, would you want to live in a ward where the United, where the United States is a secondary country to China and which they will try to impose exactly they would like to impose a lot of their stuff?
3: That's that's the thing I worry about. So, like, Brandon shakes his head. No, I would mm-hmm. shake my head. No, I assume Sino, you would shake your head. No, right. My dad would yeah. shake his head. No, all type of stuff. But people in my family I know who would go with this. Whatever. Who cares? Who cares? It doesn't – I still wake up. I still can continue on my lifestyle. It doesn't matter to me like on an individual level. And I, I'm so I would... worried that most of Americans today just would not care. They don't have the preservation of democracy or freedom that like past generations had or that like I feel like I have.
0: Mm-hmm. I've, I've had, and I've answered that question. I'm, I'm going to let you, I'm sorry, I I'm going to uh, let you give Zach's uh, question and answer too. Just want to say real quick to that, Zach, you know, I've, I've had the same conversation with people about, um, they say, I don't care. I wake up in the morning, I go to school or whatever. The life that you grew up in, that you've enjoyed, your parents enjoyed, our grandparents enjoyed is because the United States is the global leader. And when we're not the global leader anymore, a lot of things in your life every day, your day to day life will be dictated by the global leader. And that could be what sort of phone, the availability of that phone, how we import our food, other services, all that stuff. You travel around the world right now. And people typically, they see that you're an American, they automatically think you have money, all this stuff, right? And, you know, I I know from traveling around the world that the American passport holds a lot of weight and where you're going. Um, And you watch some of those old movies before they're like, oh, an American life, an American life is at stake or whatever, right? As if, you know, an American life is more important than someone else's. But the, the point is, is they think that things will just stay the same and they won't because to me, it says that there's a broader misunderstanding of everything that comes together to give you your daily life in a first world United mm-hmm. States. And in, unfortunately for most people, it takes not having something to realize what you had.
3: Yeah. That's this whole premise of my question is just kind of get it out on this podcast So Mm -hmm. people who are listening who are maybe like, I don't care if Taiwan gets invaded. It doesn't affect me today. I don't see it affecting the future. That's what I'm kind of getting If If you could kind of break it down more uh, so that, like, why it affects the American people as as much as it will. Yeah. So going
1: back, like, I guess, societal. Since I touched upon like the economics, we, we've, we've all did. But these societal changes, the fact that China will be able to impose or potentially impose their view on society upon us, like they do in other countries. You kind of see that with Laos and Serbia. And I hate to say this, in the Philippines in certain aspects. And the fact that they're able to say, like, yeah, you know, you can mistreat your people. You can mistreat certain people if you don't like them. Sure, go ahead. You know, to us that sounds insane. But if you look at what's happening in China right now with this various minorities, especially the Tibetans and Uyghurs, mm-hmm. you you see that as like, hey, we shouldn't do that. But most people don't really care about that because it's over there, or mm-hmm. it's over there in those countries. It's not affecting me. And that was another thing I was gonna bring up the fact about Pearl Harbor because that was also another reason why I didn't really care. Oh, it's over there in the Pacific. It doesn't involve me. I'm trying to recover from the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. It's over there in Europe. Like Great Britain and France, or at least what's left of the French Army fight their war. We fought it in war in World War I. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't be there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But it usually takes a an attack on U.S. citizens Cows, for us to realize, not exactly, exactly. For us to realize, you know what? They they fucked around. Now it's time for them to find out. <laughs> so that, that's that, that's why I say, like, that's why I brought up their the uh the Chinese attacking the bases in Japan and Okinawa and all throughout the Pacific because they have to and they understand the calculus of the end results of that it would be them bringing in the United States to war. Yeah. And all its allies. (laughs) Exactly. And that's something that China hates is the word allies, even though they have, even though they consider Pakistan, even though people, uh, people consider Pakistan an ally of China, they offer a lot of assistance to them, but there's no former like Mm -hmm. allegiance, alliance with them. Mm-hmm. The only uh, the only country they actually have a, any sort of military or security alliance with is North Korea, and that's actually is based why they base their negative outlook of alliances on because when you have a mm-hmm. country who little who you literally had to send a million plus arm uh, member army to go save because he bit off more than he can chew. Yeah. And then also and dealing with a lot of other doing st-
3: crazy stuff at any moment that you might have to intervene for.
1: <laughs> exactly. And so that's, so to them, they have to, so that, so them it's like, what's the whole point of a ally- line of, of having alliances. Yeah. We don't get this. We don't get the Western notion.
0: You know, the other thing too is I would ask people is the Chinese have a lot of influence in our mainstream media and all of our social media today. What makes you think if we were second to China, that that, influence that they have wouldn't be amplified times a thousand. You know what I mean? So it's, that's another crazy thought too.
3: Just, just for people who are listening and might not be thinking of the buy-in, right? You you didn't just hear it when Seno said it is that um, like they right now commit a lot of atrocities towards minority groups. You think that after the conflict and they become number one, that American citizens don't become a subgroup of humans to them. Like Mm -hmm. you're not going to be freely, you're not going to be going to Chipotle on Tuesday. You're not like, you're going to be pretty much like the Jews were in Germany. You're going to be uh, specifically marked. You're going to be murdered. You're going to be weeded out. And any form of you being like, I like the constitution, The founding fathers, democracy, the Second Amendment—gone. It's not going to matter.
1: Exactly. Like people think, oh, I can just go into the hills and um, exist there. I don't need to deal with like the problem of a communist, uh, a Chinese-dominated society. It's like no, this—they'll extend their tentacles to um, to your to your uh, homestead Mm -hmm. because that's what they want they want total control of society and people and American people or the majority of American people don't, don't truly understand that. Even whenever you go into China, you see the culture shock of Americans who's like been there the first time. Like, Oh my God, like there's cameras everywhere. It's like, yeah, because you're, they're getting your face and like digitizing it and like running it every few, uh, every few seconds to keep track of you. Mm -hmm. Like, like you can't really just check in. So the check-in process within the Chinese, within any hotel and in China, is completely different here in the United States or even mm. abroad. Um, whenever you give them your passport, they scan it because that scanner will send that person an electronic copy to the local police department. And mm. if you have been known to say bad things or need to be you know watched then you may have a suspicious you may suddenly have someone either telling you at the most extreme or detaining you or someone who will check in at like a couple hours after you in the hotel room either across from you or beside you or side of you and they will just sit there and or, and they'll just monitor you. And ironically enough, whenever you leave, they'll leave. You go to these mm. places, you, you go to the same places. Or some places. They, they, they know how to tell people. Mm-hmm. And so unless you want that same level of surveillance in the United States, then people should really care. Because that's what China really
0: wants to mm-hmm. export to all countries yeah and i could see some sort of hellscape of if something like that god forbid were to ever happen of course right we have the second amendment we have a ton of people in the united states who would defend their their homeland and their ways of life like they should you know the chinese would do everything they can at first to do something politically to change the landscape politicians trying to legislate things to make you know maybe to get rid of rights and all this stuff and you know They would try to go about it that way, covertly before overtly doing something. And it would be with people that look like us and people that we elected or whatever. And that's how it would go. And they would want to destabilize and cause issues between uh, citizens of the United States like they already want. And it would get way worse. And it would be the best thing ever for them if some sort of civil war broke out because of that. Because then it really, you are talking about a broken united states that is no longer a threat and it would be that would be the victory without firing a shot essentially
3: and um, they, can they talk about as all the, the
0: aid to help you exactly so, I mean, it, to me, at least this is a, these are very scary thoughts and you're not going to wake up every day and go put your egos in your toaster and, you know, just exist online chronically and play video games and go to bed. That's not going to be your, you know, your life. And it's just, I wish, and that's an aim. I know Zach, you too, of, of trying to have this conversation is to, you know, the audience is to hear that this, these are possibilities, um, but these are why you should care, you know? So, um, you know, I, I really want to have this conversation just to, to set up the, the landscape about what this might look like if something were to happen in the Pacific as well. Um, you know, can we jump in on, you know the nine dash line, first and second island chains, uh, just so people understand you know, where we're going and what those things mean. Because I think that those aren't as common uh, terms uh, with this, at least civilians anyway, uh, what those things mean.
1: Yeah, so the nine dash line is a, or it's also known as the Kel Um
0: mm-hmm.
1: is the line that China uses to say that we own the South China Sea. Mm-hmm. Now you have to understand is that. Taiwan also uses the nine dash line, but they're not as vocal about it.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so it's pretty much nine dashes to where it covers, the Southern half of uh, of the South China sea. Um, one of the more interesting aspects of this is whenever in uh, Indonesia tried to act like a mediator or try to say, could you China or try to say like China shouldn't do this or should be to do less aggressive actions.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: China essentially extended the nine, the nine dash line to include Indonesian, Indonesian territory or Ingen- oh, Indonesian. Yeah. Well. Uh, yeah. It's like, yeah, yeah. well, um, yeah, exactly. Okay. You want to be involved? Say now you're involved. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it's, it's very funny that, you know, you, you compare it over the years, like, Oh, they extended it. Mm-hmm. Why? Because in Indonesia opened their mouth.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> right.
3: And so you want problems. You got problems. Australia exactly. is going to be like, hey, stop that. Next you know, it's like now off it's the coast 27 of New Zealand. dash line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: I was like, yeah, we we found a. Just make the list, buddy. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, we found a a Ming dynasty or some, some Chinese. We, we found yeah. a piece of par, a Chinese pottery on this random ship off the coast of uh, of uh, Australia. This whole section of Australia is now ours. Right. Get your
3: subs out of here.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, go, Sorry, Camber, go away. You're now Chinese. Right? You're now, you, now, you now identify as China.
0: Right. Koala
1: so, bears the... are
0: now like panda bears.
1: There are Exactly. <laughs> they need to go about repainting them. <laughs> yeah. Just job in China. Right. Yeah. I can see that. Oh, my right. God.
3: Anyways, nine dash line. Serious. Get back, go back yeah, to yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. So the, they
1: use that as outlining. Hey, their um, this is our territory. Anything within it, such as the Spatleys, is ours. They've actually used the, sa- the, the same argument that hey, China historically has been in this region. We've actually claimed to these islands since the Ming uh, Ming dynasty, at least the Ming dynasty. And
0: how far th- back is that?
1: Until the late 1600s. Okay, you have to understand that the Ming. Uh, the Ming defeated the Mongol-dominated Yuan dynasty. Okay, become... 1368 to
3: 1644. Yes, yeah. So, um,
1: yes, but um, they would always cite the Ming dynasty around 15, 15th century. And and beyond that, because mm-hmm. that's whenever you see the Ming actually go out and explore,
4: mm-hmm.
1: okay. um, because Taiwan, uh, because China was always a land dominated country before that, and while you did see some notable explorations, such as, um, such as uh, Zheng He's uh, voyages to you know to Saudi Arabia to. The coast of Africa, the eastern coast of Africa, and um, and then also uh, to Southeast Asia. Anything beyond that, the Chinese argued, like, why do we need to, why do we need to do these outrageously expensive voyages mm-hmm. when we can use the money to solve our domestic issues? And um, but yeah, so China uses the nine dash line to enforce their claim within right. the South China Sea. Um, so, I guess staying same with the South, uh, Nine Dash Line South China Sea is, that's also the reason why they built up those uh, islands. Mm-hmm. I believe two to three, maybe upwards to four now.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That uh, they pretty much transform from shoals or rocks that don't even poke up above the, the water at most times. Mm-hmm. To square kilometer islands with the ability to land bombers, um, have SAM sites, radar domes, SIGINT sites, things as that. I mean,
0: I've talking seen about some pictures time. of these islands, man. They they like are real, but they have buildings on them, and like you said, airfields and all kinds of stuff, barracks. It's pretty wild, honestly, and it's it's pretty genius because it's kind of like having an aircraft carrier that's that's out there, you know, just to uh, constantly have to, you know, you can land and take off from, and all these, you know, advanced sites. Um, the nine dash line is is a a geographical marker that the rest of the world doesn't acknowledge, though, right? Not they, as, like in an official way. They don't officially
1: acknowledge it because. That's what China wants. Mm-hmm. They want to. They want people to acknowledge that we own this.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's a part of Chinese history. We've always dominated this area. Leave us alone. Uh, don't go through it. If you want to go through it, you have to ask our our permission for mm-hmm. to either transit or like go through it. Um, that goes for any vessel or, or plane. You have to ask for our permission. And if we don't like, if we don't, if we feel like it, we. Don't have to let you go. Let you in.
0: This is like those videos you see of the Chinese Air Force or Navy talking to the American or Australian pilots.
3: Chinese Navy, please divert. Exactly. Uh, This is the U.S. Navy. Fuck off.
0: (laughs) Basically. (laughs) Right. So what's the significance then understanding and laying this landscape out of when you say first and second island chains – what do those mean? Like where they are, right? Geographically understanding the landscape and then militarily why they are significant. Yeah. So, so ge-
1: geographically it goes from extends to the North r- around the Kuril islands, all the way down to the Japanese home islands, the Ryukus, mm-hmm. Taiwan, uh Mindanao, the Philippines, um Luzon, um, Luzon, Taiwan, mm-hmm. and islands that face upon the that face the South China Sea,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and the reason why it's so important is because one, or at least from a uh, from a military aspect, is the fact that we're able to contain China. Right. That's also another reason why they would like to have Taiwan, mm-hmm. because. Without Taiwan, with Taiwan, the first island chain is broken. Right. So, if they're able to take over Taiwan, whether it be uh, or, uh, whether it be uh, peaceful, which they would they want to do, or or, or kinetic means, which they kind of don't want to do, but they're willing to, to do it. If they do, mm-hmm. they see there's no other point, there's no other recourse, and so for them. And so, a lot of people don't understand or realize the importance of that is that right now we have China contained. Mm-hmm. Yes, they're able to do a lot of operations within within the uh, within the island chain. They're able to go around and fly their planes. they're able to go and do these joint operations with Russia, do these uh, big scale military exercises. But the United States and other countries are able to do the same thing as well. They're mm-hmm. able to transit, they're able to move around and say, hey, and, you know, pretty much at their free will. Yeah, right.
3: China doesn't really project its power outside of, like, almost the borders of China, at least mm-hmm. Uh I just butchered that word, but um, you, you don't Beasins hear about Africa. Chinese, you don't hear about Chinese, like, Navy ships, like, in the Atlantic Ocean. You don't hear about Chinese, like, Navy ships, like, you know, over um going down like the like by Egypt or Israel or whatever. There's like merchant ships, but there's not like actual like destroyers and stuff moving around like the US does.
1: Well, they do, but on a significantly decreased scale. Mm. They're they're able to project power but not on the same scale as the United States and other like and other powers like France or mm-hmm. or Great Britain. Um they want to, but they can't. That's the reason why it's very important to point out that they're able to do these operations, project these power, projector power within that area. But mm-hmm. at the same time, we're able to do that too from across the globe and other countries as well. And the United and the China can't really do anything about it, except mm-hmm. for play the uh, audio recordings of this is Chinese waters, territorial waters, <laughs> interstates, like, please leave or bad yeah. things will happen to you. In which the United States and other countries, it's like,
0: Bye. <laughs> Kick rocks, well, it's kind of like bye. when Nancy Pelosi went to Taiwan, there was a bunch of threats that were all empty.
3: They're going to shoot <laughs> they just the a plane guy. It's
0: like, okay. Right. They threw a massive timber tantrum about it and didn't do anything.
1: Exactly. It was just a um, the voice their displeasure. Mm-hmm. They weren't going to do anything because they understood that even though the United States was or, you know, we're in the process of rearming or re-pivoting our military to more focused upon the the Asia-Pacific region, realistically, we will be able to answer any kinetic attack. But then not only that, but them shooting down a U.S. House of Representatives and her group is not yeah. anymore. And yeah. so they understood that. Like, it's one of those things in which they, they voiced around. They said, yeah, we want to sh- we'll shoot it down. We'll, we'll um, escort it, in which they didn't because mm-hmm. they knew that that would be the worst game of fuck around and find out that they would ever play.
0: That'd be the modern Gavrilo Princip shooting Archduke Franz Ferdinand in the car in Serbia. That's what that would be. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. So with the second, first and second island chains, why are they so significant for the United States Navy as far as projecting power? Cause uh, I'll just jump right in on um, the technological advancements that the Chinese have made to deter United States from being able to attack the Chinese should we go to war, right? So the uh, the DF-21, DF-17 missiles they have that they say can hit the uh, carrier strike groups and prevent the United States from, uh, you know, getting jets inside mainland China, um, everything that they'd want to do, prevent movement, right? Which would all be extremely crippling things to the United States Navy should we go kinetic with them. So what, what role and why is that so important? Um, and then how accurate is it that the Chinese say they can actually hit those carrier strike groups with those new missiles, those hypersonic hypersonic missiles? So going upon your first
1: question, like how oh. significant these are to military or defense strategies that they almost think of them as almost defense lines, that we can hold them here. If they try to pierce it, then it would be extremely hard it would be extremely costly for them over time. That kind of changed because they're able to utilize the different ballistic missiles, that, including the anti-ship ballistic missiles, the F-21 and DF 17 like you pointed out, Brandon, mm-hmm. but realistically it's hard to hit a moving target.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and so that's one of the reasons why um, there was a Chinese research paper that came out, I believe in May they actually mm-hmm. talked about the, the potential for these missiles to, uh, to be able to, sh- to successfully destroy a carrier group.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now that paper, I mean, I, I believe you read it. Uh, I believe you and Z- you and Zach read it because mm-hmm. I wrote about this in the bulletin yeah, where I critiqued it. Right. And they said that we are able to destroy 90% of the carrier group in over 20 iterations. Mm hmm. However, when you do, however, when you read it, it's a very small carrier group. Like one, it was only represented by one, one carrier, one, uh, one, dis- uh, one, uh, class cruiser, I believe four destroyers, arguably mm-hmm. four class destroyers. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but they said like, we were able to destroy it. But then a Taiwanese uh, think tank took the same study. And tried to replicate the results,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they found something extremely different. Um, they came up with only two ships. Wow! Using using the same conditions, using the same so called constraints, and those the majority of the time they were either uh, two destroyers or one carrier or one one destroyer and one cruiser. Mm-hmm. One time, one or two times they were able to strike, it. they were able to sink a carrier, but right. most times destroyers. And the reason why they were able to even, and so they've changed up the battle or they changed up the scheme. And so they've stopped. The most important thing is that they stopped the carrier group in its tracks. Okay. So it was a moving, it was just, it just stopped.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so from there they were able to destroy it. And then not only that, but they've, uh, decreased the, but they also turned off all the active and passive ca- countermeasures that the ships would have
2: mm-hmm.
1: to be able to deploy.
2: And so it just those easy, two, is that
1: oh, one, what happened? Yeah. yeah. So there's still two bait. And that's when, uh, exactly. It's like, and then from there, that's when the Taiwanese researchers started to see the same numbers. So, mm-hmm. It showed that they were going on a flawed premise that we will stop the uh, that we would stop this, that we would stop our carriers and won't launch everything that we have. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> and then also they wanted those results to come out. And so uh,
3: this this one of those things in which I know for sure can't... that if an aircraft carrier was like sinking or going down, every possible plane is getting off that aircraft carrier. And mm-hmm. that thing is launching everything it has as it's sinking like it's it's, yes it's not just gonna go oh dang it! i'm sinking we will see you later guys nah right (laughs) everything's going off Mm
0: -hmm. yeah like
1: everything is gonna be going off and not only that but just the fact that they think you know one or two cruise uh, ballistic missiles will take care of it even though like it may have like um you know mrvs uh multiple uh Mm -hmm. launch vehicles right um and um they would, like, destroy, like, totally destroyed the carrier through you know, shotgunning it. Right. Um, just a mere fact that they think one or two missiles will be able to take, destroy it just kind of flies in the face of what the Navy found out in the early 2000s.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: When they tried to sink a carrier. Yeah. Actually, one of the predecessors of the um, of the Nemitz class, I
0: think. Right. It was a Ford class carrier, wasn't it? They That's on YouTube. They,
1: no, it wasn't a ford class carrier. Mm-hmm. It was an earlier one. Okay, uh, I forget. Yeah, it was. I forgot. It was like in the early two thousands. Okay, and they, um, it took them two two weeks, and they expended a lot of ordnance on it, and it was two still weeks. standing. Yes, it was still standing. Or <laughs> was still selling, and so That's what insane. ended up happening? Yeah, um, so what ended up happening is that they had to send in a team to rig up the uh, rig up the carrier to. To explode. To sink.
3: Well, I know like it's during incredible. like after World War Two and the US was like practicing and testing their nukes and stuff out when like bikini eye bikini eyed or whatever. I can't remember. Mm-hmm. Bikini Quasalina Idol.
0: Tool. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm. Um those were old like World War II ships that they were gonna decommission anyways, and they were nuking them and they still couldn't sink some of those. And it has something to do with like unless the nuke actually like hit the actual uh ship, it wouldn't it it would get super irradiated and yeah all the people would probably be dead on it but the ship would still be there. Yeah, just right. chilling. Like <laughs> we'll
0: just keep landing planes on it. Yeah, you're good.
1: Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Like yeah. it it even nuclear warheads, if it's like not directly, as you pointed out, directly on top of it, or mm-hmm. we'll land directly on top of it, it's not gonna destroy it. And so we're talking about a navy carrier that took Not only technological advancements, but also the code of experience of World War II and us trying to develop an unsinkable or a non-sinkable carrier.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And and not only that, but the um, the Ford class, the one that they use in the study, also discontinued upon that. So it's Mm -hmm. it's one of those things in which you read the uh, when you read the study when you read the research paper you realize that one, it's very biased and two, it's like almost propaganda at that point.
0: Mm -hmm. So playing devil's advocate with this, right? Assuming let's say that those missiles could do what the Chinese say they could do, or at least a fraction of what they say they could do. What does that do to limit the United States' military ability? You know, if, if the United States can't get close enough to China, right? What does that mean for us in a battle there in the Pacific? I think
1: what it means for us is that it would complicate planning. Mm -hmm. We won't be able to project our power at minimum Mm -hmm. to the uh, the, um, first island chain.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Not only that, but just the fact that um, it would also prevent, it would also give the Chinese free ability to actually conduct operations within not only the first island chain, but also the second island chain.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And while negating our ability, and then, and then also, even if we were to try to operate there, it would. The planners would have to take into account, hey, hey how long can we, how long can we operate here in this location in this vicinity, until you know a Chinese satellite or a Chinese uh, PLA uh, uh, People Liberation Army Navy aircraft spots us.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so it's goes. You have to go. It would re- it would reduce operations, and mm-hmm. then to where we would have to either you know move quickly on, and pick up the air, pick up the aircraft, um, fund their mission at another spot, or um or conducting small short mission, missions to where we would have to limit our objectives for those for them
0: significantly. I know that the Navy and the Air Force because let's be honest, they're, these are the two branches of the U.S. military that would be the most crucial should something like this happen, are working heavily on having aircraft that have longer range so that they don't have to rely going inside those closer island chains. Um, so, I mean, at least the United States, is uh, they see the issue and they're trying to remedy it, but I think you would probably agree so that the Chinese would prioritize taking out bases in Okinawa and Guam over um, taking out carrier strike groups or focusing on those because that would limit our ability to resupply and, you know, take off a hell of a lot more.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So they would strike those, they would destroy those, um, those uh, bases. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason why you've seen, you know, not only the U.S. Navy Air Force, but also the Marine Corps and Army be able to, uh, in a weird way, resurrect Tinian Islands, such as Tinian, uh, Saipan, um, other islands across the South Pacific to where they can operate, disperse, mm-hmm. uh, disperse operations. You kind of, you even see that in the Japanese uh in the Japanese strategy now, mm-hmm. uh, and but then also in the U.S. Marine Corps strategy to operate from small those small islands that make up the Ryukus.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I believe the United States is actively doing it mm-hmm. in one, in one island, in one on a couple of islands off the off the coast of Okinawa, but then also Japan is in the process of creating. Little bases, little logistical warehouses, and uh-huh. anti and ship ballistic or anti ballistic missile bases, all along the Ryukyu island chain, to make it to where, if the if the plan if, if the plan wants to go in, if the Chinese navy wants to go in, wants to pass pass the Miyako uh, Straits, which is the strait they have to pass through to the exit the South China uh, South China uh, to exit the uh, first island chain. Mm-hmm. then they would have to run the gauntlet if you
2: will, mm-hmm.
1: of not only anti-ship ballista- anti-ship cruise missiles, but then also Japanese aircraft
2: mm-hmm.
1: and Japanese naval forces as well, in which they have significantly more experience and knowledge in how to conduct combat operations than the Chinese.
0: Mm-hmm. So what are the most recent American estimates of what damage the Chinese could do Immediately, let's say, you know, within the first couple of days, should they invade Taiwan and we go to blows?
1: I think it would be the total or the near total destruction of every base in Okinawa.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, With an emphasis on Fatima and Kadena.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: They would, I wouldn't be too surprised if both, if both air bases were to receive at least three volleys of cruise missiles.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Or, or at the very least, some type of soft operation, follow-up operation, to Ooh. continue to, de- to deny the ability to, for those, uh, for the United States to repair those, uh, repair those sites. Mm-hmm. Now, moving on to mainland Japan, you kind of see the same thing. Will some sites survive, of course, um, possibly accessible, maybe even. The northern bases because the Chinese wouldn't be able to launch or won't be able to uh, launch the missiles without Japanese aircraft or air defenses getting in the way. Mm-hmm. But the more south you go, the increase in destruction. So Yokosuka will probably be the northernmost island that will be hit. Mm-hmm. But then after that, um, Yokota, maybe. Much every, Yokota, um, Nagasaki. I believe is where the San game is based,
2: huh?
1: Yeah, again, <laughs> but th- this time there Sorry. won't be. Sun. There won't be. <laughs> this time there won't be a sun. Yeah, um, that's what you think. <laughs> oh, I hope so. <laughs> well, I hope not.
0: <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Be a big difference. Yeah.
1: exactly. And um, but yeah, you'll be seeing them strike those bases in Yakuni, things. Those those places, mm-hmm. and you'll. And to again either being totally totally destroying them or or just dest- or uh, damaging them to the point to where realistically the Japan Ch- uh, the Chinese or the uh, the US would not be able to operate from them. They mm-hmm. include using the uh, aircraft or any of the equipment there.
3: Mm-hmm. Do you think China um, would attempt attempt to take land in this like first couple days as well, like um, completely obliterate like Okinawa and then take it? You think that's a possibility?
1: I don't think they'll take Okinawa. Will they okay. take the Senkakus? Of course, they'll probably try to take it just to add insult to injury to the Japanese, mm-hmm. because that was another island that was that they considered part of the hundred years of humiliation.
3: And they're probably but, they're probably invading Taiwan, boots on the ground at the same time this is happening. Like that's literally like a rock stone throw away, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. So for them to I think the mass, they won't try to outright invade mm-hmm. any of those uh, islands. They'll probably try to like land soft or to complicate efforts for us mm-hmm. to continue to use those bases, us and the Japanese. Surround them, yeah. maybe. Exactly. Maybe surround them or perhaps um, using the continued threat of additional missile attacks to prevent us from actually landing there landing troops or getting people off the island,
4: mm-hmm.
1: in which they they don't care. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty certain they wouldn't really care if people get off the island. It's just the fact that they just don't want people coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so going out further, Guam would be... It would be hit, because they, they have to take the chance of, of them actually striking Guam, because it's a nixus. It's a halfway point between... The United States, Hawaii, and Australia, and Okinawa, mm-hmm. and Japan, and South Korea.
3: It's also like a huge yeah. bomber base. Yeah, exactly. It's where the retaliation is so probably going to come from.
1: Exactly. So they'll so they'll make it a point to strike all those bases within the, within uh, within Japan, but then also try to take take out Guam, mm-hmm. just to be able to cause us to. Just to be able to cause us to complicate um, uh, complicate our plans to be able to and to be able to not to respond um, as effectively as we could
2: mm-hmm.
1: now will they succeed of course um, depending upon um, how they do this depending upon if they do it at day night if we knew they're coming then the success rate would be dramatically decline dramatically. Now, if it's, they do it as a sneak attack, then, of course, it would be increased. But regarding Guam, I kind of see it surviving, even mm-hmm. though the Ch- even though the Chinese would try its best to destroy it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, let me ask you this. Uh, two parts of this question. What is the United States' ability to retaliate and bounce back as far as, like, taking a punch and recovering? Right? And obviously, this is You know, we can only speculate because we have no idea what the level of damage would be if you're talking about just missile saturations on airfields or whatever. But, um, you know, let's just feasibly say, like, you you sunk several, maybe an aircraft carrier, right? Several of the ships. You struck, you know, these bases. How quickly can the United States bounce back um, infrastructure-wise, personnel, that kind of thing?
1: It would take them probably around two to three weeks for them to move um, to move mm-hmm. additional units to the fusion. Not only that, mm-hmm. but to be able to uh, build up any new sites. Again, mm-hmm. like going back to where the United States actually uh, created these ad hoc airfields in Tinian and other places within the uh, within the South South Pacific. Mm-hmm. So you'll see them try to get those as operational as they can in a short amount of time. But then also. It will take a large a large degree of mobilization, mm-hmm. especially in Hawaii or in Alaska, because depending upon how China uh, would feel about it, they would pa- they would also probably strike those as well. Yeah, I kind of doubt it because th- at that point, it's considered a strike against the U.S. Homeland, mm-hmm. homeland. Right. So I think that's where they would draw the line. Mm. But they'll be, but we'll be able to use Hawaii and and Alaska as uh, as waypoints, as new waypoints to push troops out to the Pacific. Does that mean China will give us free will, free, uh, free reign around there? Of course not. They would probably, they would probably deploy their submarine force around there, mm-hmm. so that any ships or any any ships or any other naval vessel leaving would have their run the risk of being sunk by a Chinese sub.
0: I actually think that's probably an area where the Chinese are significantly behind the united states um i feel like that is an area where we would excel exceedingly is our submarines in that area i think that uh that's not a topic that a lot of people discuss, uh, very much when we talk about this, this battle, these naval battles, missiles, anti-missiles, stuff like that. But that, I think United States subs are going to be that ace in the hole, so to speak. Um, and I know I saw something recently, um, I think I shared it with you, Sino, about how the United, uh, excuse me, the Chinese are saying they can start tracking, um, U.S. subs a lot better, um, based on the bubbles that come off of the rotor blades, uh, on the subs. But, um, You were saying that that's probably uh, not as accurate as the South China Morning Post is insinuating. Yeah, so this kind of goes back to my earlier point that
1: I pointed out Mm -hmm. in the uh, other research paper that I talked about. The Mm -hmm. DFW, or the DF anti-ship ballistic ballistic missiles. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Whenever something like that occurs, and whenever you see a research paper like that being published... If the Chinese do not have it out there on public domain or even mm-hmm. in their uh, little research, the CKNI, their mm-hmm. research paper uh, database, mm-hmm. then they don't want that information to be coming out. They don't want the information to come out. And for two reasons. One is because they don't want that technology to leave China. They don't want other people to steal it, as ironically enough as that may sound. <laughs> yeah. could um, okay. Exactly. Um, but more importantly... Is that it may not be entirely true Mm -hmm. as the other research paper, as other people may have, as as the other research team in Taiwan pointed out Mm -hmm. in that paper, right, in the other paper. And so this has always been a holy grail for the Chinese is to find some way to detect Western subs, Not, not, Mm. not just the United States, but just Western subs in general, because realistically... This is also another reason why they hated the fact that under the 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 Australia UK, uh, oh, United States deal, AUKUS, mm-hmm. um, deal, is that the United States and Great Britain is able to give nuclear propulsion technology, nuclear sub technology to Australia. Mm-hmm. That's the reason why they they had a literal like, uh, t- temper tantrum for mm-hmm. you know, weeks on end is because that was their tact the mission that the the uh, that their anti uh, anti uh, sub warfare is mm-hmm. lacking significantly yeah. and so that's the reason why they made it a point to say oh we found this new technology that will be able to detect subs mm may it may not be the case because they it's just that's like for them a holy grail in which not only that but then other technologies as as, as um magnetic uh detection
2: mm-hmm.
1: magnetic field detectors uh, I don't know if you've ever seen like a p three or a P8 or like um any other mm-hmm. anti okay so yeah, P3 most four, but yeah, so you have yeah okay, so. For a P three or anyone else, you, you notice that they have like an elongated tail at the mm-hmm. end, right? That's a MAD. magnetic anomaly detector. Hmm. That's what that tail does. Like it yeah. just it just flies there and just soaks up it like magnetic fields, and they detect an anomaly, then they don't investigate it more.
3: Yeah. When I was stationed at Kadena, there was like there was like twelve or so of them sitting on the runway. they were operated by the Navy, the U.S. Navy, little P threes mm-hmm. and. We call them submarine sniffers.
1: Exactly, yeah, that's pretty much what they do. Right, like, that's their bread and butter. Hmm. Um, the P eights kind of took over the role, but the secondary role of being given to their version of Global Hawk or the Navy, Navy's version of Global Hawks. Mm-hmm. I don't know how that's going to work out, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's like um, it's small air fr- or like this. When you compare the Global Hawk to a P3, it's, like, kind of... The P3 is bigger, so it's, like, you can okay. fit more stuff on it. It's, like, I don't really see the point. I don't really see the, the rationale behind it. But anyways, they they want to find these new technologies, these disruptive technologies, will well, because they, they know or they want to say that would be their ace in the hole to be able to find and detect and destroy the subs. Because right now, they don't really have it. Mm-hmm. They don't even really have a adequate analog to the P8 or P3. Hmm. They don't. They have one, but they're still trying to figure out like how to operate it.
0: It's not on, and bar. even
1: then, exactly. Then also, like the range is kind of funky. The capabilities may not be as good as a P3, as a P3 or P8. And so mm-hmm. it's one of those things in which you see that as. A, you kind of see that as them just saying that yeah we don't have a good enough capability, right? And so them trying, so it's them just trying to get anything that would give them a leg up. Even then, even if it is true, and I think I talked to you about this, uh, talk talk to you about this, the fact that this um, technology or this experiment is based upon or this research based upon uh experiments done in a laboratory setting.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: On their best on their perfect conditions.
2: Mm-hmm. Or at least
1: per- and like at least the most perfect conditions possible. And it and will that exactly translate to and will that exactly translate to um,
0: operational to conditions. Settings? Yeah.
1: Exactly. Well, operational conditions. Real life conditions. Yeah. And so most times, it may not be. Even mm-hmm. if the Chinese were to try to hurriedly advance this to the operational stage, it will still take time to actually develop the tactics, doctrine, and equipment needed for this. Because you just can't strap it on to like um, a Y-8 or Y Y-9.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And tell it to go off, tell the commander to go off and go do great things. You, you just, you just can't do this. It's, that's not how it works.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like you, you have to develop a whole new variant, if not a whole new aircraft for it. Mm-hmm. Because I believe that the, um, because I believe that the actual, uh, piece of equipment that detects the bubbles, it has to be dipped in. Right. So, even then, that kind of regula- regulates it to a rotary, rotary craft,
3: mm-hmm. which would
1: be their, wa- their version of the Z20. And that should also tell you that they're more focusing upon rotary blade uh, mm-hmm. uh, helicopters for the... A lot uh, of reading anti- between the lines. St-
2: mm-hmm.
1: Exactly. For the anti- anti-sub warfare role, as opposed right. to Exactly to the US. It's a combination.
3: I'm not too worried actually about China being able to detect our submarines because I don't think mm-hmm. they can at all. Or they could probably have like through seismic stuff. They could probably hear them or whatever. That's fine. But I don't think they ever know where they actually are uh, because the US doesn't even know where our submarines are sometimes. So, <laughs> <laughs> like, what? Well, because I I had a buddy. He's not in the Navy anymore. He worked on submarines. And he told me that there are times for, like, weeks that those submarines will go, like, offline. You know, they're not – they're super far deep. And the U.S. government knows where they're supposed to be, but they don't actually know where they are. So, like, if they're following the route that was, like, top secret or whatever and that the Pentagon is aware of, cool. But if that submarine wanted to go rogue – you don't know where it Red is. October.
0: It's it's Red gone. October. <laughs>
3: like you, you don't Red know October. where
0: it is. <laughs> it's got Sean Connery down there.
1: Right? <laughs> virus, an iris an Irish sound uh Scottish sounding um,
0: yeah some where the uh, Bostonian game trash.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> mm. Well I mean well Zach, that's actually a spot design.
3: Yeah. Mm. <laughs> you know it's it's pretty opposite. smart. Yeah. <laughs> Because if we can know where right. they are, then it means anyone can know where they are. <laughs> so don't just I don't exactly. want to know where they are.
1: <laughs> exactly. So for people to say that, you know, for people you know, this is this is the whole thing that I kinda agree with whenever, you know, generals and admirals will say like, Oh, if you're an admitter, if you're emitting, then you're a target or if you're if you like you're on the spectrum electron, electromagnetic spectrum. Um, I agree with that. And that's one of the reasons why, they, why submarines do that.
3: Yeah, it's mm-hmm. also why submarine commanders, aren't they like all, I appreciate sure they're all one stars, aren't they? Like they're not low ranking individuals. One, they have the ability to launch nukes. And then like they're entrusted, like to do the right thing when you're supposed to, like you don't need to be micromanaged. We don't need to know everything you're doing. Just go into the water and chill. I well, remember correctly. Let me look it up. exactly. I, th- I think they are high I think
1: they're... They're Probably Lieutenant at least Oh, okay. Yeah, they're, 6. they're captains. Yeah, I think they're captains, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. And I think... And the reason why is because, like... One is, like, the degree of experience you get from, like, operating, you know, boomers or nukes or things, this as that. But then not only that, but just the fact that um, you have... The trust they have their trust. Mm-hmm. They have a lot of amount of trust from the commanders, from the one stars, mm-hmm. from the three stars, from the president, even because nukes,
3: right? Aro sixes, yes, mm-hmm. yeah.
0: So you, we were talking about AUKUS a little bit, um, which obviously is an alliance the United States, the UK, and Australia have. But where is the United States gaining and losing ground with other allies in the region? Oh wow! Um, this is a
1: very interesting. Uh, this is a very interesting comment. Uh, question. Okay. No, because I'm. This is actually something that I'm. This is actually another project. that I'm so researching You're the
0: perfect on. person to answer this question. Sounds like. Nice. Exactly.
1: <laughs> um, Good. Where they're running a foul with AUK is at?
0: Uh, I, because this will be the easier,
1: easier one to to answer. Okay. Ironically enough, um, would be a lot of the countries within Southeast Asia. Such as in, Indone- especially Indonesia and in mm-hmm. Malaysia, um, uh, Singapore not so much. They actually love Aukus. That we re- support it, but they also come at. Uh, they also have the balance between China as well. Mm-hmm. And they said like, yeah, we love this, but we need to get along, guys. Please, <laughs> please, <laughs> <Yeah>. please.
0: <laughs> We're in the um, middle.
1: Yeah, because it, well, not only that, but they. A lot of people don't realize is that there's a small bias. Base, a joint base mm-hmm. in, in Singapore. Yeah. So that's kind of the reason why they had the balance. Yeah. Even though they don't, the United States' side.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, but, and then farther afield, you have countries just in New Zealand who, you know, they they understand the need for it, but they, they're they not going to join it or they're not going to, and, and they're going to, not let any subs, uh, uh, Australian subs, uh, uh, port there anymore. Once mm-hmm. they become operational, which is ironic because there've been reports that they let Chinese navy sub, navy subs that had nuclear warheads on them, oh. uh, uh, be stationed there or uh, call the port there. So what? it's like, uh, are you really? Um, Damn. As a whole, Oceania is totally is is uh, behind Akas, with the exception of those Solomon Islands, which mm-hmm. given because they're pretty much a, a Chinese puppet at this point. Yeah. Um the on the fence people, um in in addition to Singapore, Vietnam, they understand the they, they understand the necessity of it, but they also don't really want to be a part, part of it. Okay. Um Cambodia is against it. Mm. Obviously, Laos is against it. Two, two of China's biggest friends in the in the region needed mm-hmm. the bidding of China. Yeah, um, Thailand they're again they're for it, which ironically enough um, shocked me because they've been increasing their military ties with China
2: mm-hmm. recently. Yeah,
1: and and that kind and that's kind of concerning because Taiwan or not Taiwan but Thailand you can actually see the bare rather of who has more influence within the region at any yeah. given time from outside outside players. Yes. And the reason why is because Thailand is the only country within the Southeast Asia region that did not become a colony of either the United uh, United States, Great Britain, France, Netherlands, anyone else. That's interesting. And they done yeah. And they done that through and the king who was in power at that time done it through skillful diplomacy, but then also developing a uh, relationship with the United States. Mm-hmm. And so, even though you see this, even though they always had a relationship with the United States as a backup plan, or at least at that time, they still had the balance between the two powers, two outside regional powers at the time, which was mm-hmm. France and the British Empire. And, and in addition to Skillful diplomacy. They also gave up some lands mm-hmm. um, that the British and French wanted. So Laos, they gave up Laos, or at least a majority okay. of the majority of the, the majority of the, uh, majority of, the uh, of the land that would become Laos.
2: Okay.
1: And then for the case of um, uh, Great Britain, the majority of the Shan states, so would become the Shan states located in Myanmar. All right. <laughs> yeah. So. So yeah. So. And then to see them becoming more closer to China is very interesting because, uh, while also maintaining the United States aspect of, of the relationship, is very interesting because one, you kind of hope it maintains it, or at least the fact that, you know, or at least the United States gains some more security influence within the country. But but if at most have a mate. Maintain it, mm-hmm. or at least have have th- uh, Thailand maintain it between China and United States. But um, if you do see China, or if you do see th- uh, Thailand pivoting towards uh, China, mm-hmm. especially in the security sense, like they lessen, like lessen uh, uh, Gold's reach, or they. They cancel start. They start canceling exercises. Then that is an indication that they are pivoted towards China. Yeah, China. But Myanmar, they hate it. But that's due to the junta itself, not not so much as being a supporter of China or the United States. Just mm-hmm. the junta. Just uh, the the uh, junta uh, dominated government just doesn't like outsiders and also having a highly a big nationalistic streak. Bangladesh, you kind of see them for it, but they also understand that, um, they would have to be a, they have to be a middle power between not only China and United States, but India as well, which leads me to India. That's India one, likes man. it. India likes it. They, they don't, they, they don't mind it. They don't see the, they see the point in this. Right. But yeah, let's talk about will India. we see, yeah, w- will we see India become a quad? Will Will, they, will we see AUKUS become the quad, a quad-like um, country?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I doubt it because one, the United States, Great Britain would be uncomfortable with transferring that information to the the, the, the their technology and information exactly to India but then on the flip side india will be uncomfortable with trying to um increase uh, relationships with those countries because of china they still they don't want to antagonize china but then also they don't want to they want to go their own way they also want to become like a this regional headman saying that hey we're here we're no longer under any colonial masters okay yeah. Great but um we want our own way, and I, I don't really see them continuing down that path because, even even some within the the, the, the diplomatic and foreign and uh, foreign affairs and security communities, defense defense security communities, understand that China's a threat. We experienced them invading, 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 and going to war with us multiple times we know they're a threat. And so while we have allies who think the same way, we need to pivot towards them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But they get drowned out by the Mahdi's and the more more extreme voices of the BJP. Right. And so, yeah, it's one of those things at which... All, it's like 50-50. Um, some countries like it. AUKUS, because of what it represents. Others don't. And then others are neutral.
0: India holds pretty big keys with um, helping or hindering Chinese uh, trade in that area, and not wanting to just basically be the doormat that the Chinese wish they would be. And the other thing that is interesting too, the dichotomy between the Chinese and Indian relationship is are these border disputes that happen all the time? I mean, these guys are literally fighting each other, but you don't hear it in the news. As often as I think you should, considering them being the size they are, the global powers that they are in their region, Um, you know. So I think both the United States and the Chinese would love to see India make a decision, right? And like you said, India wants to be their own person. Um, But where do do you think if something happens, where do you see India leaning more towards? If something does
1: happen, India would try its best to stay out,
0: Mm
2: -hmm.
1: but then also. At least right now, they will try their best to to stay out of it. But they know eventually they'll be drawn in mm-hmm. to any conflict. They'll be drawn into conflict because China may use China may actually conduct operations along the border to you know prevent them from from uh prevent them from actually coming to the aid of aid of the United States and Taiwan, mm-hmm. or the fact that they don't or, or the fact that they may not even want them involved at all. Right. They may try to play the fact that, Hey, if they don't want to get involved and we shouldn't antagonize the Hindu, the Hindu elephant.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So they may try to, so they may not even do anything at all, but for them, they would understand that they would have to, they would have to get involved eventually. Right. Because if Taiwan falls and, you know, they get the territory back, then that, means they, then that means they would have to pivot their focus upon getting territory back, at least from the Chinese perspective, mm-hmm. to those uh, ships uh, of land along the Chinese-Indian uh, borders. Because that's another remnant of the 100 years of humiliation, but then also with that, uh, the colonial era for mm-hmm. both sides.
0: Where do you see the United States Navy going in the right direction? And where do you see it going in the wrong direction?
1: They need to figure out what to do with the – they need to figure out what to do with the – I forgot what those little ships are called. Littoral? Yeah, the the littoral combat ships, which I don't know how they're called combat when the modulars – the modules that are supposed to enable them to, comp- to conduct combat, right, uh, have failed. Failed to failed to repair even after like twenty or so years.
0: It's a total failure. That whole concept, and we keep mm-hmm. we keep always in like we're in a contract where we have to keep buying them too, right, and having mm-hmm. them produced, which is which is fucking crazy. Exactly,
1: and I think, and this is the thing about that contract or about the ships, the freedom and. The America class, I, f- I forget what's, I forget yeah. what they the other one all called, but no maybe one Zach wants them. No one wants them, right? Exactly, no one wants them, and that should be an indication of how useless these ships are, right? Like maybe I mean we could try to give them to the Coast Guard, but what are these ships doubt... called again? Littor- littoral,
0: l i t t o r a l, l i t t o r a l, littoral. Pretty sure I'm
3: saying that right. Oh, yeah. These are useless. I remember these. Yeah. Oh.
0: (laughs) Thank you. I remember remember what they look like. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
0: No. (laughs) No one's having these pieces of tin.
3: I remember when I saw them, I was like, how is this a combat ship? It's got like one gun. Like, who's it shooting at?
0: Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Like, they they
1: tried putting, like, um, the new anti-ship cruise missile on it. Mm Mm-hmm. But even then, it's like one or two shots before you had to go back to port or go back to a planner ship to reload. It's like, right. is it really? Did you really increase its effectiveness? Any? Yeah. Even then, like it's not capable of like long term deployments at sea, like you would like would be needed for, um, like it would be needed for any type of uh, Pacific campaign. Mm-hmm. Yeah, being able to uh, island hop. But even then, it would be limited to what I uh missions it could to conduct.
3: We only have two of these
1: no we have
0: like there's a ton.
3: Yeah. Oh fifty two. Mm-hmm. Why so many? And so oh.
0: correct me if I'm wrong, the, the Arlie Burt class, that's on its way out, right?
1: Yes, it's planned to look to be decommissioned in batches. Um I think we're still building them. Because you know, over time, we're gonna we're moving away. Uh, over time, we're gonna develop the new ones. Um, but yeah, the the Ollie Burke class is slowly or it's, it's going to be phased out because mm-hmm. it, it's an old design. I believe 40, 30 or forty years years old at this point. Um, what's um what they're doing right? Or at least I'll continue with with the do wrong first. Yeah, they still haven't really considered a,
4: topic.
1: yeah, they they haven't really considered a, or at least, uh, settled upon a new cruiser, mm-hmm. um, type or design. Um, that is significant because the cruisers are the main ship and anti-ship ballistic missile defense or anti-ship or anti, um. Or an, uh, anti air air capabilities it can provide. Okay. Gotcha. For carrier groups or for like ARGs or amphibious ready groups things like that. Mm-hmm. And so for them to not settle upon a design or like not have them being being built yet is kind mm-hmm. of it's kind of alarming to me, especially since they're long. now beginning to yeah, especially now since they're um, going away with the tire, uh the T class. Mm-hmm cruisers
0: excuse me um this is a big the tech- gap isn't it between the united states and the chinese as far as even technical capabilities on these ships radar systems uh weapon systems sh- ship defense systems all these things
1: not yes as of right now
2: mm-hmm.
1: they have their own they have their own uh dragonite um Eye uh
2: radar okay
1: and it's people say it's analog to the, um, to the Ags, mm-hmm. but I doubt it because one, it's Chinese and then two, they more likely copied it from nice China. Mm-hmm. So it's like, or they come more likely copied it from the United States. So it's mm-hmm. like, they're good at copying, but will they be able to add stuff to the design if they don't already know what to do with it? Right. More likely not. But even then, like the quality of the radars, may not be the best. Mm-hmm. So there's, so you have to take that in consideration, but even then it still gives them a massive capability than what they had before. Okay. Uh, also fun fact. If you look up different, um, pictures of the dragon eye, mm-hmm. you'll see that they've originally, I don't know if Zach's able to do this, but, um, I
0: can, he can do all things. <laughs> oh,
1: very, very well. Okay. Type in, type in dragon, dragon eye variants. I think you should be able to find, um, define both 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 types both a i believe or the or at least the initial uh, prototype and the um finished version or the one that reached operational status it's a big there's a reason why i say well I'll, there's a reason why i say um, they may have copied the they may have stolen it from the ages
0: hmm. i mean it wouldn't be the first time no, it wouldn't be the first time. The but it
2: be the last.
0: Exactly. Exactly that. But <laughs> this is so
1: blatant that you can't really deny it. It's because kind of like well, looking I'm,
0: at the J20. You're like, oh, wow, this yeah. so such obvious design characteristics. <laughs> right. I mean,
1: the J20 in and of itself is kind of. Is it really stealth?
0: Yeah. Which for people oh, yeah. listening is is a Chinese uh, stealth fighter. We use parentheses and say stealth fighter
3: loosely. I yeah. was at, yeah. when I was stationed on Okinawa, I went down for a flyaway mission to an air show in Australia. This was like 2000, mm-hmm. 2013, I want to say. 2013, 2014. And uh, China was invited and they brought like some stealth. I, I don't know if it was the J 20 or whatever, but they brought uh the J twenty there and um uh, it never flew it sat on the runway and they were all like yeah it's really cool da, da. and then you had the US flying like all their the F-22 like all their cool stuff like Australia's flying plane like everyone else is flying their planes and China's plane just sits at the end of the runway and no one was allowed to go like even close to it. It'd like super far away. And when it when it came in it didn't fly in either. It like came in on a that. cargo aircraft. Like it didn't, it didn't fly in, it didn't fly anywhere. It was just sitting there. It's like a paperweight. It
1: was still in his research stages.
0: Yeah, um, it still is. I wonder if it was <laughs> being used for alternate means.
3: It's <laughs> just picking up my cell phone thing while I was on Fair. Instagram yeah. or something.
0: I mean, just bring it in, let it soak up, whatever. I don't know.
3: These that's Dragonite variants, you're talking about, like, the domes on their ships, right? The little radar circle things.
0: Yeah, uh, so, like,
1: the finished version of it should be, like, flat on the... Like, I don't know if you've ever seen, like, RG's class, uh, the, the radars on, like, the t class cruisers. Yeah. They're, like, two big p- panels. Yeah, so yep. that's kind of like what you see in the Chinese cruisers, right? Yeah, I've seen like, them now. Not the same. Yeah, they're not the same. But if there should be some pictures of like the earliest variant, in which all it was was just a spinning radar dish, right? <laughs> that was the Dragon Eye, and I'm just like, you know,
3: yeah. <laughs> if, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna save this picture. I'm gonna send it to you. Uh, Are you able to share lady. it on your screen? I don't know if I can share it on my screen. I don't think I have that ability on here. Damn.
0: Yeah, if I. No, I can't. I
3: can share screen. Yes, I can. Share your screen. Share your screen. Give me a sec. Let me make this bigger. (sighs) All right. Share screen. This one. Has it popped up yet? you guys see it? Yes, it's
2: stinking. No? Stinking
3: yeah. about, it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean,
1: I think they were just they didn't want to fly it because they didn't want to take the embarrassment over. There it way. is. Yeah, that's that's the um.
3: <laughs> so the one on the right is the old one. The no, one
1: this on the... this isn't. Uh, this is the um. No, it's a different one. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is a um. If you type in Dragon Eye, actually no, let me see.
3: I've typed in Dragon Eye Radar. Zach, pull up your search history. You want <laughs> to pull my search history? Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> okay. If you if you type in Dragon Eye radar or type 36 radar, you should be able to feature you should be able to see it.
3: Dragon eye radar type 36 radar. Uh thirty uh, thirty six uh thirty-four six. You want me to look up pictures? Yeah, because you should be
0: able to see it. Yeah, you you may have to reintroduce the screen to the uh the yeah, studio. Let's do.
3: Stop sharing. Share screen. Uh, just... you talking about this one.
2: Let me see.
1: Yes, oh. that's it. <laughs> that's the uh, that's the finished version. Um, I don't know. I don't really see the um,
3: the, the one the before. Is it this one over here?
1: <laughs> no. Um, Damn it, no, that's a that's a that's a different one. But anyways, yeah, it was just them. It was just a radar dish spitting. i it, it was just thinking, you know, mm-hmm. just come out and say that you copied it, guys. I mean, at this right. point, I mean, like we we all know you did it.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> I mean, it's like. Don't be so big. Don't be so blunt about it. Don't be is so this, like.
3: Look at about this it. ship. Is this paper mache? Why is this like wrinkly and like falling off?
1: Oh, because of the uh, anti radar characteristics or oh, anti radar so material.
3: It's supposed to look like paper mache then. All right, cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> aluminum
0: foil. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Cool. But yeah, so, I mean, um... yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. No, 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 no go ahead, Sam. Nope. No, so, um, yeah, so the the uh, radar, um, it's essentially a copy of the ages, but is it really? Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't know.
0: So. More than likely. It's one of those things where the circumstantial evidence is uh, points in a certain direction. Exactly. Um, as far as production, though, the Chinese are certainly outpacing us, correct? Yep. In terms of ship, mm-hmm. uh, yeah.
1: They've. I think they can produce five destroyers a, a year, right? If not more, if not more. Okay. Uh, compared to like two, two for the United States. That's crazy. In which, yeah, in which that's going to be if we do get into a fighting war with, with the Chinese, going to need we're them. We're going to be that, at a... That matters, yeah. big time. Exactly, exactly. Because
3: do you think we can really take... Do you think that we're at two now because we're being conservative? Do you think that we could ramp it up to five, six, maybe seven?
1: I think it would take some difficulty on our part because we've shut down so many of those boat yards those mm-hmm. shipyards from um, after this cold war, but especially during the war on terror, yeah, so we just we shut them down. It just depends upon how quickly we can get them back up and rolling.
0: So same question with the, the Navy. What about the Air Force?
1: I think with the Air Force, they're what they're doing right is finally coming to senses that maybe shutting down the F twenty two rafter line. Is it's not a very vocal or very popular opinion if I understand mm-hmm. is that they're coming to terms with the fact that this is a horrible idea and, that would be good yeah in, in which um that and that and them trying to figure out that and them trying to make the F-35 do everything yeah they... to include being an office chair um <laughs>
0: Was nice. also a bad thing to do. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. You can't know, like, see the thirty five running cas. Just can't see that.
1: No, and I think that, and it's a it's a casualty of the United States institutional dislike. I use that word dislike mm-hmm. um, of them doing cas because they were settled at that mission s- since nineteen forty seven or eight, I believe. Mm-hmm. The Key West Agreement between the Army and the Air Force that enabled the air force to be its own like little
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, branch. Yep. Um, little. Oh, uh, well, right. Uh, now, now we got our I own mean, little branch. Yeah. <laughs> <Space> right. Like, <laughs> like we have our own child. That's right. See, <laughs> and it's smaller than all your, and it's smarter. It's a baby.
0: Right. It's not real. it but, doesn't uh, exist. <laughs> the space force can't hurt you. It doesn't exist. the space force. <laughs> Show me on this doll where the space force hurt you.
1: (laughs) It's right there. No, no, like um, they have thirty-five. I hope they got it. It seems like they finally figured out the 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 error in which trying to giving Lockheed Martin Boeing whoever Mm -hmm. else has that contract the leadway into mm. producing the aircraft, like actually having the majority of the say of what the aircraft can do.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think that was a big another big mistake because then now you have it like cost overruns, They have these um, uh, production delays, things such as that, because one they have to come back and do the redo the design sometimes. Mm-hmm. That was the case with the machine with the uh, cannon. Mm-hmm. And then also with the ability to attach hard points, external hard points to the uh, aircraft.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And that was a big mistake on the Air Force's part, but also DOD. um, Since that caused it to go not only behind, but, you know, cost overruns to where it's like literally the most expensive defense program we have in history. Right. And that's including, The aircraft carriers and also were two. And, but then not only that, but just the fact that the Air Force is slowly dragging their heels on trying to get a new bomber released Mm -hmm. to replace the um, B 1. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And, which I don't know if they even have a new one yet or if they're going to. Oh, they're going to rely on the B-21, which if they do that, then that's a significant um, flaw in planning just to be able to say, yeah, we can increase these
3: aircraft. Well, doesn't Um, the
0: 21 have a small, like a significantly smaller payload?
3: Yeah, it's like 30% less payload, but Mm -hmm. it's stealthier.
0: I mean, I don't doubt that for sure. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, but that I... B1's got, like, two F-16 engines on it. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. not meant to be stealthy. Just meant to no. fuck your ass up. It's,
3: it's, exactly like, the, it's the, like the F-117. It was, like, super cool and built to be awesome. And it it did, mm-hmm. like, one mission where it just blew up Saddam Hussein's palace. And then it wasn't <laughs> flown ever again. <laughs> We're
0: going to use this to just blow your shit up because...
1: At least we can. Mm-hmm. And we spent money on this. We got we the, get
3: it. But... Well, the F twenty two, we were talking about we we're talking about yesterday, Brandon. The F twenty two's got two aerial kills and it's balloons. Yeah. This the most advanced like fighter jet supposed to replace the 15, the coolest thing freaking ever. Two balloons. Good job.
0: Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but like who's got the who's got the freaking fighter balls to get
3: in the air with one of those things, though? To, That's to true. let it, you know? Because whoever does is gonna be blowing up before they even know the F twenty two is there. Yeah, man. Yeah.
1: It's funny because like the J thirty five, not the J thirty five, but the uh, J twenty has went toe to toe with like the, uh, with the F thirty five. They actually flew along it and you know flew along, uh, flew around it and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, For my knowledge, I don't think they never done that with the F twenty two. Should check
3: that. Yeah, because they have no, because they don't even know if they ever flew next to F twenty two. They can't detect it. Well,
0: like so the thirty-five so... <laughs> like trying to be as stealth as it could be, or was it just one of those like, oh, we don't care, we're just it, here?
3: It's supposed to be stealthy-ish, but it's not like supposed to be as stealthy as an F twenty-two. It's like, hey, well, if I... you can fit it into this, into this, go ahead. But right,
0: yeah. Well, I know you're running think... into issues too with munitions and stuff like that on the the thirty-five and stealth, and th- that sort of thing matters for sure. But
2: mm-hmm. yeah,
1: yeah, so. That's one thing that um that's one thing I, I I see the Air Force hopefully gets back on track with the with the F thirty five. But yeah, I mean like they've actually seen I believe the an Air Force Corps or Air Force General mm-hmm. actually said that, hey, we have seen we've actually interacted with the J twenty in the East right. Sea. Right. They have but I haven't heard yeah, but I haven't heard them saying anything about like the F twenty two. Mm-hmm. Early's like the Iranians have the F fours, right? But then again, I think it's like what Zach said. Like <laughs>
0: that's so funny.
1: Uh, yeah. Like they they wanted to they wanted to do that mm-hmm. because I think if I'm not mistaken, the F four or the F twenty two snuck up on the right. uh, on the phantom. Mm-hmm. Yes, it was, and,
3: the, and that whole thing was the um, the U S was flying a drone. Iran shot down a drone, so then the United States Air Force decided, okay, if we have drones flying next to the Iranian border, they're going to be, like, guarded by F-22s, because screw it. And so Iran went to intercept this other, like, just drone, and the F-22s were able to fly underneath the Phantoms, look at their armament, then get up right up next to them and, like, broadcast it to them, like, you can't, you can't even, like, uh lock onto us, like just leave. And the F phantoms like immediately like pfft, like just bounced. They're like, Ooh. oh shit. <laughs> but the F-22 was like there. Like right within now. like close within plane realms, you know, fighter plane realms, mm-hmm. like right underneath them. And the F-force had no idea. Um yeah a J twenty clashed with an F-35 in March of twenty twenty two. They flew around each other, and they kind of did a couple stuff, and then the J twenty left. Um, but no, I can't find anything where it ever happened with the uh, with the twenty two. But it happens because it's a real spaceship, dude. Yeah, yeah. I'm willing to bet. It's for X-wing. real, I know it the, is an X wing. I know the F twenty two intercepts like Russian bombers all the time when they go down to like Pacific coast of the U S. Um, but they don't. I don't think. I don't think anyone ever flies next to F twenty two. They're too scared knowingly. Good. At least. Right. <laughs> no one knowingly flies next to an way too.
1: Right. It's one of those things in which do you really want to try or do you just want to die?
0: Yeah. So just real quick, and then we can jump to another topic, but like, where would you say if you had to give just like two points where the Navy is lacking the most and then where the, the air force is lacking the most in preparedness to go toe to toe with China?
1: I think it would just be their ability to, Conduct one amphibious operations that the Marine Corps wants to do,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and then two, um, they vastly underestimate their ability to take casualties.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's the same thing with the Air Force; they think that the technology will be able to save them, but um, things happen.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Missiles get lucky. The F one seventeen that was shot down in Serbia was it's, it's a case it's a case study in that. Right. So I think for both of both is the fact that they can't, they underestimate their ability to take casualties.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then I guess with the Air Force too, just them trying to figure out like another lead-in troop, you know, the A-10. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. they need something, they need, they need something dedicated to CAS, even if it is... Island to island? Yeah, because... Um,
3: make a daytime. Uh,
1: well, see that—that's—that's that's my thing. Is the fact <laughs> that you know they—they they should. I mean, it's. The I've thing seen with cool tasks,
3: renders of it. and It looks so sick. Just, just make that. <laughs> just exactly.
0: Just do it. Just do it. Just, Lockheed, just do come that. on, Raytheon, yeah.
3: you guys. It's just taxpayer money. Come on. Right. So,
0: blood and sweat and tears. Right.
3: Yeah. <laughs> so, Sino, where where do
0: you think the Chinese lack? the most in comparison to the Western military general, right? Like we're we talking like NCO core, like where, where, you know, shooting um, qualifications, like where do they fall behind? They fall behind a lot. They've, the NCO core, they want
1: one. They want to create a Western, Western star NCO core. Seems so they, odd. Yeah. It, it's when I say Western style, style, it will be in the image of what, the CCP would want mm-hmm. the PLA to have. So it's, it's important to bring up that point because the PLA is a party army. Mm-hmm. And before they gave their officers leadway into thinking for themselves, be able to conduct, uh, not have to listen so much to party directives or party orders. Mm-hmm. But Tiananmen actually caused that caused. um, uh, Caused that to go away because the CCP understood what could happen. Mm-hmm. Like, um, they've, um, the, uh, commanding general for the garrison in China, uh, in Beijing said at first, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll put, we'll put down, I'll put down the, uh, I'll put down the, uh, protest. You know, they need drag his feet for a couple of days and then he said, like, And then ultimately, you know, he said, um, shouldn't we be the, shouldn't we listen to what the people say? Like, we're the People's Liberation Army. We're the People's Liberation Mm -hmm. Army. And so after that, um, that's whenever you've seen these mass mobilizations of PLA units outside of China, outside of Beijing Mm -hmm. and surrounding area, just to go in and crush that revolt. Because a lot of people don't realize is that prior to... The most recent reforms in 2015, if not 12, mm-hmm. was that they would, uh, they would st- uh, Chinese people conscripted into the PLA would stay around their ho- hometowns or home regions. Mm-hmm. It's not so much now, and so okay. that's the reason because of Tideman and. And so they seen the, they realized that, and that's one of the reasons why they actually had to bring people in because they can't, they couldn't trust the the garrison units in in Beijing to put down the revolt or put mm-hmm. down the uh, protest. Okay. And so for them, they want an NCO corps that will be able to lead or you know lead in the last hundred yards, if I'm going to use a Marine Corps terminology. Go for be it. Be able to take. Yeah, to be able to take the initiative, be able to utilize the best judgment, be able to take the orders of the officer, whether it be lieutenant or second lieutenant, and mm-hmm. go forward. They want that, but they don't want it to be – they don't want the NCOs to have too much power. The same thing with That's the officers. Kind of it is. It, it is, but for them, they think – they can do it. They've, we actually seen them trying to implement it, but will it work? Time will tell until time will tell if they truly are able to implement it with the ultimate test being the crucible of war.
0: And I just want to say real quick for the layman listening, because this conversation, this specifically, right. If you're in the military or have been in the military, you'll understand what we're talking about. We're talking about NCO and why it's so important. And I've been around a lot of our NATO partners and the United States having the NCO core and the rank structure that it does is, is unique in a lot of ways, even to some of our NATO partners. They don't have that. They have a lot of conscripts. um, They have a lot of, uh, you know, the ranks aren't as spread apart. And um, the reason why that's so important is because at the end of the day, Zach and I, you and I were talking about this yesterday, that if, if we're all in a platoon and this person who's our leader goes down, Right. We all know who's next in charge. And that person should know the job of the person over them, just like the person mm-hmm. under them knows the job of the person over them. And it goes down all the way to the lowest ranking person. And that's crucial because if we all understand the the mission set, we all understand what we have to do. We get to, you know, whatever, there's a frangible wall. We have to go in this way. We know we have, you know, how we're going to breach or what what objective we're going to. I understand as you know, let's say an E4. I understand what the O2's mission set is. If he goes down, my you know, sergeant goes down, I now am in command. I know I can still get there because I know what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And that is unique to a smaller group of Western militaries. The United States leads the way absolutely in the NCO course, the most important piece of our military. And so, for the Chinese to want to have this, it it shows that they know that it's a good thing and that it works. But, like you said, Zach, it's counterproductive. You have to have something called
3: thought process. It does,
0: and you have to have something called decentralized command in mm -hmm. order to have that. When the corporal can lead the way from point A to point B, when you know his sergeant and the LT in charge go down, that's decentralized command. He's making decisions for himself and the people around him. And, you know, you have to be able to let go of those reins a little bit, which, like you said, Zach, is counterproductive.
1: Yeah. Like, they understand the ultimate, the the CCP, which is ultimately what controls the PLA. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have, the P, the PLA doesn't have its own, it's not its own entity as the U.S. Army or, you know, the British Army or, you know, the French Army. Mm -hmm. it's a party army. It's subordinate and will always follow the directives, or at least the CCP hopes uh, follow the directives of it, of the party. And so for them to lose, to see that control means to see the control of the barrel, the gun, Mm -hmm. because that's one of the main power, main pillars of power the CCP has to maintain control. As you've seen, as we've seen in Tiananmen, Yes, the people are complaining about power, even though the CCP even though the CCP is supposed to be for the people.
2: Mm-hmm. At the end of the
1: day, we don't they don't really care for what the people want as long as they have the guns. Yeah. To you know, enforce their will. Well,
3: that's what I was getting at when you're saying it's counterproductive. To to allow your lower enlisted um, to have the ability to lead, then they have to have more knowledge about things going on. And if they have the knowledge yeah, was, of things going yes. on, then they're probably going to rise up and overthrow you. So you can't. <laughs> it's you like, it. a, yeah. no, no, no. I, I want them to know things to help me win this war. But if they know things, they're going to be on the other side of me fighting me in this war.
1: <laughs> that's, you bring up a good point, Zach, because like they've that's also another reason why they looked into AI so much, especially for operational decision-making, but also intelligence that makes sense and so you
3: have ai yeah, make the decisions that. but it has like a stop like you can you can lead them until you want to overthrow me once you overthrow me you can no longer lead them <laughs> <laughs> well
1: yeah it's 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 the, it's, the, it's that one it's that aspect but then also the fact that you brought it up too is like if we don't give them critical thinking skills or like the ability to think for themselves mm-hmm. but we let the ai do it then we don't have to deal with that issue right because at the end of the day, these those AI programs like War Skull and World Skull Two, they mm-hmm. have a built-in mechanism to where uh, the uh, where the both programs would supply the decisions to the uh, to the commander.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now he's able to pick, but he's only be able to pick between options A, B, and C or D.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And he and if he tries to deviate from that, it won't let them.
3: Ooh, it's pretty limiting. <laughs> it's like false options,
1: <laughs> kind of. Exactly. <laughs> I mean the the PLA said that at least the scientists behind the programs that are being used now they said that it could be, um, it could take into consideration tactical and operational changes on the battlefield. But I don't see that happening. Hmm. At least not as fast as like as we would do it as the United States military could do it mm-hmm. because, you know, our leaders trust us. Right.
3: I feel like that's such a nuance because who's inputting the data? How is it receiving the data? Like, are the data points on like the soldiers? Are they on like, cause yeah. I feel like, so it, it's... I feel like in war, like that's why the, that's why the Lance corporal can make such a split second decision. that's going to like win that battle in that moment or, you know, whatever and the time it would take for the data points to get to. I know AI and computers are fast, but still the data has to get there, then be analyzed, mm-hmm. then decided upon, and then sent back. That and there's time, no human
0: element in it either.
3: Yeah. In mm-hmm. in that time, it took the, that Chinese military to figure that out. The freaking Marine corporal who's three bangs in and high off freaking nicotine has already wiped out half your forces. Like, he's moving on to the next... <laughs> he's hacking your AI and using it to look up pornographic material. Like he's not, (laughs) he's moving (laughs) off. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that's another thing is the fact that, um, they're, they, um, everyone's a sensor.
3: Every is a century.
1: Exactly. (laughs) Um, you're, um, they'll be able to upload anything. The, The AI program is able to use anything from like the new, um, The new um, headsets, that the PLA um, is rolling out all the way up to information from national level assets or, you know, satellites, um, surveillance drones, things like that, be able to take that information and combine it and analyze it. Are these like squad level headsets? Um, no, they're. I forgot the one that's um, that the U.S. armies and I think the U.S. Marine Corps is trying out. Mm-hmm. It's the same. It's the same lines. It's okay. The same. It's the same thing. Got you. They, they copied it um, yeah. again. So Weird. it's like there's, there's a recurring theme about this: is that certain <laughs> yeah. technologies that um you could tell which uh, which technologies are important to the Chinese by Does how they much they copied it.
2: it. Yeah, <laughs>
1: and to what degree they copied it. Man, it's the same it thing. Yeah, no, I, I agree. But no, it's that's one of the things about it is the fact that, you know, for the NCO Corps, it's that decentralized command and ability to, you figure it out, you take the lead. They want that, but only to a certain extent, because mm-hmm. they know what that leads to.
0: Right. Trying to prevent things from happening. Mm-hmm. So obviously, to win wars, you have to uh, put bullets down range. And I know that um, you and I were talking offline about this, but the standards for qualification are apparently significantly different between the United States and the Chinese. And it sounds like the Chinese are uh, not definitely not up to snuff.
1: No, um, especially now since they've quote unquote uh, revamped it. Okay. They just added in, they just added in, they just, added in 200 yards uh, 200 uh, 200 yards uh, 200 meters uh, qualification distance and you they're able to shoot and and uh, expanded the uh, positions they could use
2: okay
1: and that's flies that's totally opposite to what the marine corps and army d- does now which mm-hmm. is totally focused upon combat focus upon how to shoot a moving target and disassociative terrain mm-hmm. um, you have to run Run, run a certain distance, and then acquire the target and shoot it. And then, um, I believe for the case in the Marine Corps, they're able to use like plywood cutouts or plywood uh, decks that simulate door frames and things such as that. Mm-hmm. So it's more along the lines of qualif- trying to replicate combat. Uh, what you things that you uh, instances or situations that you would have to that you have to that you'll find yourself shooting at uh, shooting in in combat, in actual combat. Because, okay. And I know I totally butchered that. And yeah. I know but um uh but when you compare that to the PLAs, which is essentially a downgraded table two mm-hmm. for the Marine Corps, just static shooting, right? It just flies in the face.
0: I even saw they have like uh simulated shooting ranges.
1: Mm-hmm. I think that's also I think that's the reason why they've also don't really put an emphasis on actually shooting as well. Um because they do have those because they do have those simula- simulations, but it's more along the lines of CQB. Right. Uh, they don't okay. Be able to do like CQBs, be able to um operate in buildings, rooms, clear mm-hmm. out how to clear out rooms. They yeah, yeah. also don't
3: have a lot and, of ammo. Like they do have they have a lot of ammo, yes, but like they don't have a lot of ammo to spare practicing, right? They're like worried that if something ever happened that ammo needs to be used on the battlefield, not to practice for the battlefield. So they withhold a lot of training ammo. I, I remember reading that.
1: Yeah, so they on the on average, the PL, a PLA soldier shoots around 160 uh, rounds per year. Okay, um,
0: that's wild because you shoot more than 160 rounds in one day, typically. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, to, to give you a comparison,
1: miles. 160 rounds would be the United uh, would be the Marine's new quali- pre-qualification.
0: Yeah. On what's average, like, what's the Marine Corps qual? Is it like quarterly? Is it biannually? Like what is it? It's annually. It's annually. Okay.
1: It's it's annually for everyone, but you have to understand people in combat MOSs or yeah. in units those, yeah. who,
0: yeah, that's what I was getting was so, The 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 MOSs is you know your Army 11, Bravos, Marine Infantry. Like those guys are throwing live range or uh, live rounds downrange all the time. They're shooting thousands
3: mm-hmm. of right.
0: rounds a year, you mm-hmm. see? Yeah, that makes a difference. Yeah. So yeah. to see exactly to
1: see so to see the PLA shooting that many rounds or shooting the number of rounds and then expect them to be as good as it is compared to the United States or the United States Army Marine Corps is kind of laughable.
2: Definitely.
0: So I'll ask you a couple more questions and we can kind of wrap it up. But, one of the things I'm interested in is where where do you see American soft versus Chinese soft? And by soft, means special operations forces. Anybody listening? Falling into the equation, should something go hot? I think it would be just them doing
1: clandestine operations behind enemy lines. They would be able to do those, you know, be able to do deep reconnaissance, be able to do deep sabotage missions. Mm-hmm. Things us as
3: that, blowing up like mm-hmm. power, power supply areas like dams, messing with communications, that type of stuff.
1: Yeah, but I think the, uh, but I think the, um, certain elements of the CIA would deal with blowing up dams because it would look bad upon us, and it's goes against the oh, law. Yeah, or... it, would,
3: it would be the rise up of the Chinese people, mm-hmm. CIA assets. But yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But um but yeah, it'd be like the, so for so I'm gonna break it down by like soft unit, I guess. Break best way to do it so Green Beret, yeah, so Green Beret would be those units doing a combination of of deep strike, maybe deep reconnaissance because they can't do integral defense uh integral defense because it's China. They mm-hmm. could, but it would Take time for them to actually grow something out of nothing. Not only that, but their time is better spent on like doing kinetic type missions. Yes. Yeah. Sabotage, deep reconnaissance, things such like that. And then, so Navy SEALs would be going in, doing reconnaissance on beachheads, beach landing sites, things such like as that. Same thing with force recon. Maybe Marine Corps, um, the Marine Raiders would be, would be the middle link between the Green Berets and Navy SEALs since they can do both. Right. And then the PJs would be doing uh, rescue operations for any down aircraft or any down airmen Mm -hmm. trying to locate them. And then uh, TAC-P would just be doing TAC-P things.
0: Combat control, TAC-P, yeah, just blowing blowing shit up.
1: Exactly. And then for the weathermen, the special operations weathermen, they'll
0: Tell the weather. Now, so the Air Force actually, they don't call them combat weather anymore. What do they call them? Special recon. And they definitely, they kind of changed up their mission set quite a bit. Mm. Um, shout out ones ready podcast. Uh, but uh, <laughs> they have a, a special recon um, operator on their, uh, their podcast. Uh, so I would, uh, I'll hit you up offline with uh, his name and stuff like that. But um yeah, it's, it's definitely changed up, and the Air Force is kind of geared, gearing itself to be a little bit more ready by changing the mission set.
1: Okay. Yeah, that's good, because I always thought that was strange, because why would you need, why would this be considered soft, like special operations? You literally just tell the weather.
0: Well, they definitely, I'll say this, they definitely do a lot more than the weather. And obviously, when you're dealing with aircraft, um, the weather is very important. Specifically in um, A-10, doing yeah. low-strike stuff. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm not going to pretend like I know everything about what Southie used to do when they were called Southie. But, um, you know, the, they definitely changed up their mission set quite a bit. Um, but uh, I know you can learn a lot about it from the Ones Ready podcast. They talk about it a lot. And um, the guy that is uh, on there, he's actually the career field functional. So he is, uh, like – the he's guy, up there. yeah, <laughs> the dude. Oh, oh wow!
4: So mm-hmm.
1: he's he's so been in it for quite a quite while.
0: Yeah, he's a he's a senior NCO. He's up there, um, really really funny. We've had him on before. Tr- Trent Siegmiller is his name. I mean, it's not like you can't find him. Uh, but he's he's hilarious. He's awesome. Really really down to earth guy. Um, but uh, yeah, he. Uh, he could tell us a lot more about it if he was here and i'm sure i sent him a, a a video the other day and it was a, it was of a, like an f4 tornado like somewhere and i was like so so when this thing's coming at you guys i was like Do you guys just like aim the 240 like right at the base or what you know and he, he took weather. it i know exactly I was like he, he he knew exactly what i was saying but it just it, it cracked me up probably more it cracked him up you know what i mean but yeah it just they don't they, Yeah, it's it's a, I think it's a very misunderstood career field. I think a lot of the air force, um, special operations guys are very misunderstood. I think PJs, obviously they're like the most well-known of the air force, uh, special operations guys, um, combat controllers. I mean, we've, we've talked about, we've had combat controllers on our podcast. Um, and we even talked to, um, one of our episodes with Dan Schilling. He, uh, Pretty, pretty put it pretty pretty well when he said they're the most lethal warrior to ever walk the the planet uh just because they literally hold the firepower of the US Air Force at their fingertips. Um so I mean they uh you know the Air Force doesn't doesn't go as noticed as like, you know, the the Green Berets or the SEALs for sure. Um it's by design, but, though. it is by design. The Air Force tries to be
3: pretty quiet. Like if you're in, you're in. If you're in the know, you're in the know. If you're mm-hmm. not then Go to sleep. Don't worry about it. Go to sleep. Stand yeah. post. Go to the gate. Yep.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you so, that uh, picture of that
3: stealth day 10 dude? I do. I do. But I'm a, that's going to be the end. That's the end of this podcast. For everyone listening, you got to watch all the way to the end. Or skip, I guess. I, I like because it. Because you, you can do that. Make them stay on. Make them stay on. <laughs> <laughs> them stay on. Like right. I, had, I had one more final question uh, for you, Senna. Um, small tactical yield nukes. Now there's like, Russia's threatened to use them in Ukraine, so like that. Do you think in a conflict with like China, that that's something that could be realistically used? I don't think so.
1: No? I don't think China would use them. They're not.
3: They wouldn't. Because we're talking about like, they, they wouldn't do it. If they want to remove like a a carry strike group, uh, a carrier strike group, like you're not going to sink the ship; it's still going to be there, but you can vaporize all the sailors. Yeah, but
2: I think the
1: calculus for them to even use nuclear warhead—they're mm-hmm. on the verge of defeat. Mm-hmm. The CCP, the CCP would feel as if du- nuking American troops would be worth the risk of any potential retaliation. From the United States, because we'll, we'll retaliate with nuclear weapons on our own. Oh yeah. Now, no. Mad. Would it be? Will <laughs> Will it be tactical nukes? Maybe if we're able to move them from their bases. But I think we'll be at that point. At that point, I think the United States president would be willing to turn the key.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Any before an intercontinental
3: them, ballistic nuke.
1: Yeah, or at the the very least get, at the very least, authorize the movement of land attack
0: cruise missiles with that
3: capability. Or the submarines that we don't know where they're at, just all of a sudden start launching nukes.
0: Exactly. (laughs) but You You don't got to go to work tomorrow, guys. It's over. (laughs) Exactly. We're all dead. Don't worry.
1: (laughs) But a country that would actually use nuclear weapons in the, the Asia Pacific would be North Korea.
3: Oh, yeah. Everybody's crazy no. uncle. What's What's funny is mm-hmm. I feel like North Korea, like something broke out. North Korea would be like, China, like let me in. Like I can help you. Like we can do this. And China would be like, no, stop. Like knock it off. And then North Korea like nukes Beijing. Whoops. Like, like, <laughs> <laughs> they would be doing a massive favor. <laughs> right? It's like,
0: oh. We, Are we, we the baddies?
3: We aimed it for <laughs> Seoul <laughs> and it just went a little further. Sorry. <laughs>
1: yeah. Right? That's so sorry. We didn't mean, like, you should have gave us GPS, uh, right. GPS you know what, systems. You we know we're not them.
3: good at this. <laughs> we just <laughs> pointed in <laughs> shot. Right? Just, yeah.
0: Sorry. Yeah. It's, like those little, it's like a child
3: <laughs> pump rocket where you, like, just press on and it. goes I know. The air.
0: <laughs> just thinking of, like, a, a fucked up mortar round. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> Oops. I, we As oh. hmm. if, you know,
1: and if North Korea ever does that. Let's just say they, they want, they see uh, the China and United States get into an actual armed conflict. Yeah. I always wanted to know uh, what they actually, what they actually, that is, why, why don't we have that? Exactly. Right? Uh,
3: <laughs> it's so cool. It messed up your train of thought. Like, right? This. The right Wild here, Wolf?
1: This needs to be a thing. Not, the name could not be that.
3: I mean, like, a, no, it doesn't. Yeah. Even, it, come up. it doesn't need to be the wild wolf. It needs to be like the the A fourteen, like super war hog or something.
0: Super <laughs> war yeah, right.
3: Goss Goss but, hog. I don't know
1: <laughs> something. But anyways, like I, I'm I'm hoping that you know if that if that ever happens, then we have some ingenious people in somewhere that would give the North Koreans the wrong coordinates or be able to like. <laughs> Mess around with the coordinates on the missile so that whenever it does launch, it's like it's not going, it's not going
3: down, guys. It's not going south, guys. Yeah, it goes up, right? Yeah, (laughs) it keeps going. Oh no! Oh no! Yeah. Like, sir, is this we get closer? Sir, we put in Korea, and the missile doesn't know north or south, so it just came right back.
0: (laughs) It went to the one true Korea.
3: (laughs) Yeah, it went to. It knows that we're Korea, so it just came back.
0: Right. A, it
1: knows his homeland. <laughs> <laughs>
0: All right, so now I got I got two two last questions for you, for me at least. Um mm-hmm. what to they're they're not really related, but <laughs> what is what's China's biggest Achilles heel? And then do you think China will actually invade Taiwan? Mm. Spicy one, the
1: extra spicy one. That's right. Think?
3: Mm-hmm. Coco's level 10. I, I,
1: right? I hope it was 20. <laughs> I'll i I'll, um, I'll answer the uh, biggest Achilles heels one okay. um, first. Be quick about this. I think the biggest one is the lack of their ability to f- – the lack of their fighting a war. The mm-hmm. last time they fought a war, China fought a war was in the 1970s, 1979. Mm-hmm. And the Chinese know that it's a weakness for them because they don't know how well they'll be able to act under that type of pressure.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Not only that, but um, their troops would act because there've been reports of their um, UN, the contingents fighting quote unquote in Africa. Yeah. It's part of the UN, but that's just them shooting like four bullets and running away.
0: Yeah. Doesn't so count.
1: As, yeah, exactly. As much as they like to um, use those type of UN missions as an analog to get combat experience, it's not really working out for them. Mm-hmm. Another Achilles Hill would be just their ability to conduct logistical operations. Okay. Um, sustained logistical operations. They can't really do it. Um, and then just their command and control. They know they have to conduct a joint operation,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but they can't really do it. They haven't really done anything. They haven't really. Successfully conducted a an exercise bigger than a bigger than a division. Okay. And even at the division level, there were still some hiccups. So for them, so I think for them it would be logistical, their C two, and then also they never fought a war in like two or three generations at this point. So it's like how can they act under pressure? Regarding okay. joint, regarding um, command and control. They're still trying to figure it out. So there's that
3: other added right. issue. That's going to be a hard and,
0: one for them, especially if they don't, you know, have an NCO core. They do. They're exactly. going
3: to have an AI core.
0: AI core. <laughs> yeah. Artificial intelligence commissioned officer core. Right. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and then the other
1: one, I think I talked to you about this, Brandon, mm-hmm. um, about the potential for Taiwan. Yeah and be invaded, I don't think it's what happen. I like it. It would take a lot of issue. It would take a lot for China to even invade Taiwan mm-hmm. because the biggest Achilles heels for China, for the PLA in general, are the ones that would inherit it the most during an invasion. And a lot of people don't get that. They would rather focus upon the cessationalism. Oh, well, Taiwan, they said, you know, she said uh, for the PLA to be ready to invade Taiwan by 2027, like, relax. He said just to be ready, not to, that they'll invade. Right. Just totally different. Totally different things. And not only that, but just the fact that China has better ways of doing, of taking over Taiwan. Um, uh, not kinetic, more mm-hmm. specifically. They would rather take it, take it without firing a shot. And again, this is going back to those, um, back to the Achilles' Hill, but then also the fact that they've don't, they never really had a tradition of fighting a war to take over people's land, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Like, they've always, they've always utilized centrifuge, um, causing the people to up to rise up against them to... Uh, to make it eat to either flip the country towards them or make it easier for them to invade, to Dang. capture the country. And so you kind of so this is where Sung Zu's auto war comes in because that's essentially if you read it, it's it's about him winning is about him winning a war against three opponents
2: mm-hmm.
1: without really fighting a battle. Mm-hmm that's how China kind of sees the PLA like we want or themselves. They want to be able to win. uh, They want to be able to win Taiwan without firing a shot. Right. And they're going to utilize political, economic, diplomatic to try that, to to try that. Right. With war being the last option, literally the last option. Gotcha. You
0: know, and then go go ahead.
1: No, I was, uh, you may you may actually uh, you may actually ask this question or talk about this
0: <laughs> so go ahead oh no i was just going to say that um and if i'm not talking about what you were going to say make sure you <laughs> hit it but that that's a it is you said it was a spicy spicy take um because it is it's the unpopular opinion right now that it'll happen you had uh, air mobility commands commander general minahan come out and put this big memo out about when it's going to happen and aim for the head and all this stuff. And, you know, every airman's got to fire all these rounds, you know, now, and, um, it's definitely the unpopular opinion. And I think it's unpopular opinion for a couple of reasons. And I think the, the, the consensus is that it's going to happen because it drives, um, you know, readiness and it drives that importance home for people in, in the military. But, um, I like that you take the other side of the coin because that's not the one that you hear most often. And it is something when Zach and I have these conversations or I think about it like on my own, like, do I really think that's going to happen? Um, You know, part of me feels, a bigger part of me feels like, no. Um, I would say that I lean in a more in the camp of, yes, it will happen, um, but maybe not in the way that people um, think it think it is going to um but i do i like that you take the other side of that because it's it's a side not heard often and it's good to hear all these sides but go ahead say what you were going to say i don't know if i hit it no like no uh
1: no uh i was going to also touch upon like the likelihood of it succeeding because Mm -hmm. that's also an important thing because we can talk about like oh they're going to do it but it's to succeed and that's another thing i don't I think a lot of people don't like to talk about because then it kind of blows up in their face.
2: Hmm.
1: And like I mentioned, logistical issues being the biggest list, uh, Achilles Hill and for China, that's specifically forced projection, sustained extraditionary logistics mm-hmm. because they want to be like the United States. Now, what that means is that they'll be able to sustain any amphibious operation or any movement inland. They can't really do that, mm-hmm. at least not right now, without using massive amounts of amphibious, uh, um, without using massive amounts of civilian shipping. Okay. In which we've seen them doing it, we've seen them actually conducting practice amphibious landings using, you know, roll-on, roll-on ships, civilian roll-on, roll ships in the first wave, if mm-hmm. not subsequent ones. Right. So we see them doing this. And then not only that, but just the mere fact that any um, they may not have enough amphibious capability to transport all six of their brigades, mm. amphibious mechanized brigades, and, and the planned Marine Corps, if they ever get trained up on how to do amphibious operations,
2: mm-hmm.
1: they, they'd be able to utilize all, all 12 branches, I believe, or mm-hmm. all 12 brigades, at once. So they're gonna to have to utilize amphibious, uh, they're gonna to have to utilize roll off ships to at least transport them and/or launch them.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And then another thing is just going back to the C2, like they've don't they can't they can't operate in a joint joint environment, in which again going back to AI, they kind of hope that AI can help them do it, but mm-hmm. if you can't really operate by yourselves in a joint environment adding in a no layer of complexity such as AI will not help. That's a good point. It's like throwing monkey wrenches into this, into this plan. And then not only that, speaking of joint, uh, command and control, the, there is a hundred percent degree of likelihood that, uh, whoever is commanding the Eastern, whoever is commanding the invasion will have to answer to a political commissar. Mm sent directly from Beijing or a party official sent directly from Beijing to make sure he doesn't screw up in which um, that official will have the ability to add in monkey wrenches, AKA mm-hmm. the good idea fairy. He will be the good, he'll be the physical incarnation of the good idea fairy at this point. I love it. Yeah. And so he'll throw in all these great ideas. Yeah. If we do this, we'll be able to win. And like, he's like, okay, I can't really do that. hmm. You have to because I said so. I was like, but okay. Yeah. Throw the monkey like throw the monkey wrench and then it's just like
0: It's just like politics getting in the way of Vietnam comes to Exactly,
1: mind. but exactly. But um with Vietnam, you didn't have the you wouldn't have the immense pressure felt by the officials on the operational mm. level. Like it would be like like the like that one general would feel. Right. And which to be honest with you, I kinda of feel sorry for him because he's gonna be feeling he's his back is gonna be against a wall.
3: Mm-hmm. And when he and fails, he's gonna die. Right.
1: Pretty much. Like it, it's like setting him it, it would be like she is setting him up for failure, even if he even though he's not. Mm-hmm. Because it's well, adding in that
3: What's interesting about right. that is if she, if they know he's signed up for failure, do you think she's going to put his best general in there?
1: No, um, um, like undoubtedly, but will be, but undoubtedly, but it would be, undoubtedly, but it would be a general who he can trust.
3: Yeah, it'll be one he trusts, but he's not going to be the best
1: because Eventually. when he
3: when he fails, then he, he's going to you know be the laughing stock of the of the party. He's going to be probably killed. You know, all that of stuff. And then she's going to need an actual general to help him when the retaliation shows up.
1: Well, considering that the PLA or the CCP even still exists at that point. True. Yeah, so I mean, this, this oh, I is guess. another thing. This is another cool thing about the potential, uh, potential for it to fail. It's because the Chinese Communist Party put so much emphasis or they moved from guaranteeing economic prosperity to people Mm
2: -hmm.
1: to one that is more based upon nationalism that, like Piers Han said, at the end of the day, you may not be getting rich, you may not be, you may not live the best life, but at least you wake up and be a Han. You can be proud of that. Yeah. But, you know, you failing at taking over Taiwan, something that will rejuvenate China to make it whole again, quote unquote, is a failure. Right. That would anger, and that would anger a lot of people, to the point to where they will protest. It will cause a lot of social stability, instability,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and something that China that that the party does not like, and that would co- that would have the potential to cause a revolution.
0: It'd be interesting. Yeah,
1: it would be, and granted, I I hope it would not I hope it wouldn't turn out like that, but, and the reason why is because nukes and them being out in the wild and those potential and the potential for them to fall into, uh, actors, not only that, but just a lot of way equipment that the PLA has just would be up for sale at that point. Um, but yeah, it's, just one of those things in which, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't care if the PLA, I mean, I, I care if they fall, i mm-hmm. want to, but I hope it's like, I hope the party does it. it. It falls in such a way it won't cause mass yeah. as massive as an impact as it would be. I otherwise. care for the innocents
3: in China, yeah, who don't have a, who don't have a choice in the matter, who would definitely mm-hmm. feel the effects. I've, I've said something yeah. similar when like, it comes to like the war with uh, China potentially. Is that I hope that the U.S. if there is a conflict and we're like fully intertwined in it. That they don't like overinvest into it, if, if that makes sense. Like, there's no need for us to invade China. There's no need for us to like hold any ground. There's no like, realistically, if you wanted to win it, all you got to do is just knock them from the ability to do anything anymore in that region, and then just kind of let them crumble on their own. So I would hope that if the U.S. does get intervened, it'd be kind of like when we invaded i when we invaded Iraq. We annihilated their entire government and their military in like a week. And then we should just left. Like, we didn't need to, like, stay in there and build up. You know, is that right? So, like, I'm, I'm. Hoping I get that, what you're trying to say. Yeah, I, I yeah. think
0: the United States gets more, this is just my opinion. If China tries to invade Taiwan, they fail, right? Through the defense of the Taiwanese and then the United States' involvement, right? Yeah. I think the U.S. gets way more invasive with the Chinese mainland. And I don't necessarily mean like some sort of occupation, but I think, you know, we're talking about an American in Beijing, Americans in Beijing saying, this is what the fuck's going on. And this is what's yeah, going to
3: happen. Yeah, I, We don't need, like, military. We don't need, like, Abrams driving through, like, China. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like, I think you can slap them down pretty hard and then just, in a way, politically can just, just like, fix it. Almost kind of like what we did after World War II with Japan. Like, we didn't have, like, full-on, yep. like, brigades walking down mainland Japan. Like, it wasn't a thing. But we but we curtailed them to, hey, this is what you're going to be now. And yeah. if you what keep do you acting think, up, though? we're going to slap you again. See, I
1: don't think that would happen. I, because Personally, that would cause the CCP to regain some power. Mm-hmm. Because their whole notion is that, you know, they're trying to rejuvenate the Chinese. China. And for us to become and act like an occupied, occupying power, like in the 18, 18th century, that would probably put more emphasis, that would probably drive the population back towards the mm-hmm. CCP, or at the very least become hostile towards us. Yeah. And at that point, we would have to ask, like, is it worth it? But what we, I think, where the emphasis we would we would place on is, you know, covert operations, like those mm-hmm. influence operations, sending in people like oh, like the OSS, like the OSS, OSS did in the um, World War Two, mm-hmm. going behind the lines, doing as doing as best as we can muck it up. Not only that, but be able to just, just, um, just to influence people to not follow the CCP,
0: mm-hmm. but uh,
1: overthrow so the CCP.
0: Just sigh up all day. Exactly. And sabotage. psy up and sabotage.
3: Call up Rick Prado. Get him on it.
0: Hell yeah. <laughs> Dude, you know, this is uh, honestly uh, a fantastic conversation, man. One of the longest ones we've had. And I appreciate you sitting through almost three hours with us doing this um, because I, I know I've learned We're a lot boring. and I love listening. Yeah. Oh, totally. Not. Uh, I've loved listening to you, man, because you've taught me a lot. And I like having these course of conversations because as Zach said earlier, this is an aim of ours is to put this information out there. So people understand seriousness of the situation, disabuse some of the misinformation and then understand what the playing field really looks like. And I think that you did a really good job, um, you know, giving your opinion and and backing up logically and, and all of that. And I appreciate you doing that. And there's a lot of good information here for, you know, people who are, I think there's a lot more than you'd realize, but people want to sit through three hours worth of a podcast. I know um, there's a ton of great info, man. So I appreciate you coming on and doing that with us.
1: Uh, thank you. I mean, that's actually something that I, actually one of the reasons why I t- started Sinotalk is because, you know, I've seen people post stuff that doesn't necessarily, is true about China. And then also this is sensationalism. Mm-hmm. So I kind of figured, you know, I could do this, not only put, uh, put out information about China, but then also put a spotlight to, you know, some of the more nefarious activities that China does, especially mm-hmm. to its uh, minorities, religious minorities and ethnic minorities. And so that's one of the big things that I, uh, one of the goals of this, of my, uh, of my, uh, of my, uh, of my Instagram account.
0: Mm-hmm. Plug plug where people can find you, man, your Substack, Instagram, all that. So um, they can go and. Ah, uh, support you. Find out more information, and you you post regularly the publications that you're on. You're on Substack, all this stuff. Plug yourself, man.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. So I have a, a Instagram account, a Substack, SinoTalk. You can cr- literally find it on both by SinoTalk. Um, in addition to that, Side Endeavor. I also have another. I'm also the Asia Pacific or a- a- Indo pac chief for. The bulletin on the borderlands, where I write, not only about China, but uh, topics about the uh, Asia Pacific, where you know, to my opinion, the warfighters fighters who subscribe or are able to read this should should know about. Mm-hmm. And it's not always focused upon China; it's focused upon um, India and its ability and its abilities, capabilities, um, the loitering of drones, and how. They've seen a massive increase in mm-hmm. China, uh, Taiwan, and in India, and India, and then also the Solomon Islands, and why those islands are so important right. because it's not as if you fought a battle, fought a uh, there in World War Two.
0: Mm-hmm. So sweet, man. Um, you know, I I appreciate, like I said. I subscribed to you on Substack. Honestly, went through a ton of your stuff. It's awesome. Uh, I know if uh, our listeners are interested in listening to to us, then they'll definitely find value in your Substack and your page. Um, so go check out uh Ceno Talk stuff um, again, man. Really, really appreciate you coming on. Um, don't forget to stay on with us uh, after we end. And then, um, yeah, thank you so much.
1: You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you both to Brand. Uh, thank you both, Brandon and Zach. To for inviting me
4: on. Absolutely, man. You have a good night. You as well.